Hello, I'm E. And I'm M. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about transphobic ideologies, such as trans-exclusionary radical feminism, and its intersections with fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. This is a guest episode. We've invited our friend A, a wizened theoretician, veteran of a thousand leftist armchairs, to a group discussion about the more theoretical descriptions of fascism and how this might teach us about our enemies. A is very kindly using her academic knowledge to help us construct a more coherent theory schema so that we can properly lay everything out to avoid being too inscrutable for listeners. We will be discussing a range of theorists, famous and obscure, how they relate to modern fascism, as well as the contemporary forms of fascism with which they grappled. The core element will essentially be a critical dissection of Umberto Eco's infamous Ur fascism essay, given how core it is to our ongoing analysis. We will be looking at writers such as George Orwell, who wrote some things. Leon Trotsky, who encouraged far too many other people to write some things. Obscure Polish Marxist economist Michael Kalecki. The work of Robert Lifton, a renowned researcher in the subject of cults and totalitarian systems. Freddie Perlman, a controversial Marxist turned anti-civilization thinker. And lastly, Alfredo Bonanno, insurrectionist anarchist extraordinaire, and probably the oldest man to ever be arrested for bank robbery, having been done on suspicion of robbing a bank in 2009 at over 70 years old. As ever, our music is by Molly Noyes. Um, content warnings for this episode will probably be quite light, but as ever, the normal ones apply, given that we will be discussing, you know, things like things like general fascist behaviour and transphobia throughout the episode. I like I like uh, Alfred Bonanno. <laughs> You said Alfredo when you were reading it, but it was Freddie Banana. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> what? Okay, I'm only referring to him as Freddie Banana in the bits where I'm discussing him, and you fucked up by letting me be the one who discusses him. So good luck with that. Uh, that's going to get very confusing because of Freddie Pullman, um, <laughs> and also because that's not his name. <laughs> Is that yeah. racism? Is this is this is this, is, is this the it's never racist to, to make fun of Italians? I was say, is this the famous and anti-Italian racism? I spend most of my life being racist towards Italians. Um, Content warnings include anti anti-Italian racism. <laughs> I find your introduction of me hilarious, by the way. I love that. Thank you. I like it. I like it a lot. So this episode originally kind of grew out of a desire that we both developed to do a little bit of a critical reading of Umberto Eco's essay, which we've referenced many times on the podcast. However, it decided to kind of turn it into a critical comparison of a number of descriptive theories of fascism. Umberto Eco's essay is great. It's a really good resource for anyone who's an anti-fascist or a leftist. However, it has got some limitations because what Echo is trying to do is sort of describe the primordial basis of fascism. It's not a universally applicable diagnostic instrument. And also it's quite vague. If you attempt to use it in any kind of diagnostic manner, what you'd be doing would be much closer to craft than science. This kind of puts it in contrast, particularly with like more classical Marxist definitions and a lot of the, the more academic uh, sort of liberal oriented variety descriptions of fascist or totalitarian systems. Because of these uh, you know, limitations and advantages that are sort of built into Echo's work, it would help for you know, the, 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 the common anti-fascist in the street to have a little bit of a wider perception of the weird depth and breadth of fascism than can be provided in that, in that essay, wonderful though it is. So we're going to be looking at people who have things to contribute who are not called Umberto. Anyway, enough about the structure of the episode. Uh, it's time to introduce our guest. Welcome to the show, eh? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. 
I also love your introduction of me as a wizened theoretician. I figure, I figure either the description will put into the, the listener's mind, like the concept of like some like Gandalf-like figure, uh, like pouring over parchments, or just someone who's like incredibly like wrinkly and crone-like, who's just like hunched grumpily in a corner. I mean, I think that's closer, but I like to think my skin's a bit better than that. I think your skin is way better than yeah, that. Your skin's I, think that I think that does your skin dirty. Well, I've been wearing masks a lot recently, I don't know. <laughs> I'm used to wearing my, my sweet, soft, dry-cleaned bandanas. Left this laundry discussion. Yeah, it's that, that li- literal soft insurrection life. <laughs> Listeners will be interested to know that A runs a YouTube channel called Soft Insurrection. Uh, so, so far it's mostly been anti-Civ, Green Anarchy related things. Um, I've just put out an episode about uh, Against History Against Leviathan, which is the the main book which Freddie Pullman, who we'll be discussing later, uh, wrote. And I'm currently writing an episode about eco-fascism, which hopefully will also be relevant. Nice. That reminds me, we need to, do, we need to just run through the list of people who we're going to be discussing uh, on, on this show today. So, first up the creme de la creme of liberal analysts of, of, of fascism is almost certainly going to have to be George Orwell. So we've prepared a vast ream of notes about gorgeous George. However, unfortunately, actually talking about him would mean that we'd have to read stuff by Mr. Orwell. So we've decided that we're not going to be discussing George Orwell at all. And we're moving on to Trotsky instead. So yeah, Trotsky, Leon the Professional, um, this guy is the butt of a thousand ice pick jokes and thus the spawn of a million flame wars. However, he is also politically important in like a genuine, like real world way, because he was a highly influential theoretician and also ran an absolutely colossal army for a significant period of time. So yeah, Leon Trotsky published this book, uh, Fascism, What It Is and How to Fight It. Uh, It's one of the earlier Marxist analyses of the fascist movement, and it's actually one of the better ones. I don't think anybody on the show has ever gone through a Trotskyite phase, so I don't think any of us has really sold the party newspaper at any point. Nevertheless, do have to hand it to the man. When I was reading this this book, I was quite pleasantly surprised by how good it is compared to some stuff that I've read of a similar vein. It's a good book. Like people, people, even people who are very anti-trot and, and like making ice pick jokes will admit that. Yeah, no, um, I agree. Like I, I will say, like there's the typical refrain, which I'm sure I've said to you two uh, plenty of times. Just uh, Trotsky's fine to read, but I just hate the Trotskyists. <laughs> Shout out to our Trotskyist fans, by the way. Sure Much love sure to you guys. So many of them. There's definitely <laughs> at least one. Because well, um, they're, ev- they're everywhere, because they're trots. Oh, of course. Hey, oh, instead I've... of selling the newspaper, have you considered selling our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've read some Trotsky myself. Uh, not this book, but I've read some other stuff he wrote. And he's a really good writer. He's definitely enjoyable to read. And he's not wrong about a lot of stuff. Have you seen that, uh, like, ancient BBC TV show, Fall of Eagles? Is this the one where... It's oh, the one God. where Patrick Stewart plays yes. Lenin? Yeah, and it's in Switzerland. Yeah. Yes, so, so like, Trotsky turns up in that, played by, like, some rando, and in it, he's like, okay, you know you know, in Withnall and I, when, like, the drunk guy in the pub calls, calls one of them a perfumed ponce? <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, that guy. He's the perfumed ponce. Like, he turns up in, like... <laughs> He turns up in like Lenin's flat, being like, "Hello, I'm Trotsky," <laughs> and he's got 
he's got this like absolutely colossal like bouffant hair and like basically like turns up in the middle of the night like while like Lenin and 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 his wife are like in their night clothes and they're just like staring at him bewildered because he's like yes here's the secret passcode would you like to hear my theory text which I drafted on the train and just launches into this like very lengthy declamation and Lenin's like uh yes this is this is all very nice um however I mean, who anyway, among us would not do that? I was pleasantly surprised to discover that Dear Leon is not actually like that at all. Some of this writing is actually pretty pretty compelling. Um, anyway, yeah, we need to discuss this text on a theoretical basis. Um, you're supposed to do that. Yes, yes, we are supposed to do that. <laughs> so yeah, it was my job to read this one for the episode. Uh, the, the core element of fascism, what it is and how to fight it, is basically establishing that fascism is a discrete political movement in and of itself it's different like a fascist government is different from a, from a military dictatorial government or like an authoritarian monarchy or anything like that also its structure and its its patterns of force are like very much related to the flows of class power it's a absolutely bog standard marxist analysis saying that everything flows out of the like the struggle between the the sections of class society and the disposition of the state it's not totally unnuanced like it's an old analysis. It's from like the 1920s and 30s, which was the period in which he was like writing this. I think it was published in the mid to late 30s. So he's mainly talking really about the Italians, not so much. He is, he's talking almost entirely about the Italians and the Germans. So okay. modern, um, like modern anti-fascists will kind of look at this and think that it's completely alien text because it doesn't talk about things like race or gender that much, which are, you know, for any anti-fascist worth their salt in the Western world are completely bread and butter topics. However, I would not go as far as to say that it's completely useless because of that. Sufficiently vague on those topics that it doesn't take a specific stance against their inclusion, because the, I think the concept literally just did not occur to him because he was a random Russian guy. I think also um, the vagueness can apply in a modern setting in the in the way that he describes the structure of like the... Um that Mussolini's early years, where he says, during the first two years, not even the constitution was altered. The fascist government took on the character of a coalition. In the meantime, the fascist bands were busy at work with clubs, knives, and pistols. Like, you can apply that to modern stuff about stochastic violence, I think, to a certain yeah, extent. Like back then, back then, it was very much influenced by the the all of those like guys out on the streets who've been demobilized and were very much used to collective unit fighting. So there's a different, there's a different element, there's a different smell to the violence, but just because there's a different manner of doing violence now doesn't at all mean that the general analysis is unsound. Yeah, and I think there's definitely, there's probably room as well to understand that he is analyzing a slightly different form of fascism, which wouldn't work today. Like there, there is, there is the idea that the way in which fascism does its thing nowadays is a bit different. Yeah, the way that I kind of began to rationalize this when I was reading it was that he is analyzing the fascism of the of the European High Republic. Yes, absolutely. He he's yeah, like it reads as though he's he's analyzing like Freikorps Weimar. Uh, yeah, like nineteen thirties Spain, nineteen twenties Italy, nineteen thirties and forties Germany. All of that stuff is like. It's like the triumph of the post nineteenth century emergent European republican systems. Yeah, and it's and it's also it's it's the it's the analysis of fascism where you can most see that whole idea of it being a response to 1917, 1918 Russian and German revolutions. Indeed, yeah, particularly particularly the thing that that is 
that I think ties back to the other analyst of this period, which we've touched on several times in the podcast, Klaus Theverleit, is the role of kind of like the soldier mentality, which he refers to a few times. But I think the Theverleit is very much concerned with psychology and Trotsky is very much concerned with like state apparatus and economics and like you know power structure old school marxist shit so you've got these you've got these quotes from him like very early on in the essay which is stuff uh, and i'll just quote directly uh, where he says stuff like after fascism is victorious finance capital directly and immediately gathers into its hands as in a vice of steel all the organs and institutions of sovereignty the executive administrative the educational powers of the state the entire state apparatus and together with the army the municipalities, the universities, the schools, the press, the trade unions, and the cooperatives. When a state turns fascist, it does not mean only that the forms and methods of government are changed in accordance with the patterns set by Mussolini. The changes in this sphere ultimately play a minor role, but it means, first of all, for the most part, that the workers' organizations are annihilated, that the proletariat is reduced to an amorphous state, and that a system of administration is created which penetrates deeply into the masses, and which serves to frustrate the independent crystallization of the proletariat. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on this. Um, one thing I'm going to come back to later on when we talk about the work of Robert Lifton, uh, which is basically this concept of, of, of the act of administration penetrating into the heart of the masses, which is absolutely something that the, 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 the early researchers into cult dynamics were very much concerned with. And the other thing is this final line where he talks about the independent crystallization of the proletariat, which I really think betrays Trotsky's ultimate imperative, which was his absolute devotion to the concept of world revolution being viable. He's obsessed with this idea that the crystallization of this of this proletarian revolutionary force has to be the, the, the complete structural answer to anything that emerges out of capitalism, like any head that grows out of the hydra, be it fascist or otherwise. I'm a little bit cautious to criticize that approach because in many ways I agree with his position. I do agree with the position that like class warfare has to be the, the primary method of anti-fascism. But at the same time, I do feel that it's kind of limited and I wondered if you two might have any comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I like this basically fits into what I would expect to hear from any like standard Marxist or left communist who I spoke to about this kind of thing. Is just the absolute focus on on it as a form of class war and uh kind of trotsky doesn't say it explicitly here but there's this idea that it's basically um the fight against fascism is a part of or secondary more, more like a part of uh the general fight against capitalism as it exists already and like the creation of a proletarian revolution you do get kind of more extreme versions of that interpretation, like like in Amadeo Bordiga, where he where he where Bordiga's position was basically that fascism was borderline indistinguishable from other forms of capitalist republican governments, which is bollocks. <laughs> I wonder, like how how one differentiates that between those positions, or if it's even important to do so. I don't know. I think this is touched on uh, later on um, by Rule, uh, Otto Rule, who wrote um, <clears throat> The struggle against fascism begins with the struggle against Bolshevism, which is also forwarded by Alfredo Bonanno. Um, uh, and, and both of them seem to hold this line, not necessarily that they're indistinguishable, but that fascism arises out of, although is not 
is in some ways distinct from this class struggle um, and seems to posit it as like a more of like a the state getting in the way. I, I guess it's I guess it's uh, reductive to say it's like state based criticism, but that seems to be an impression that I get from other thinkers and, and one that I broadly agree with. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. I was just okay. trying to gather my thoughts. Um, yeah, that was good. The other the other thing that occurs to me regarding Trotsky's analysis, and rather irritatingly, I, I think the most useful quotes, I think, come in the first half of this book, uh, because in the latter half, he begins to kind of just lean into... It's a very short essay, by the way. Um, in the latter half, he begins to just kind of like lean into declamations on behalf of the world revolution and all that kind of stuff. But he very much connects his criticism of social democracy to his analysis of fascism. He thinks that, and this is a this is a concept that is carried through in leftist analysis of fascist movements to this day, that like the seed of fascism is sown in the in the failures of social democrats to to stand up to bullshit. And that, like, he, this is kind of like the generating point of the concept that runs through a lot of leftist thought. That behind every every fascist state, there's a failed revolution, or a failed revolutionary movement, or a failed workers' movement, or whatever. Um, and I do think that it is kind of instructive that, well, it, it's kind of informative that he thinks that way. It, it indicates a lot to me about like the guy. Yeah. It's 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 not like telling on yourself, but it is. It's really instructive in, in terms of you can kind of see people's biases and limitations by the fact that that's their analysis. Yeah, because I would argue that there are instances, like the, okay, actually no, I was going to say that there were there are instances of fascism that, that that occurred without a failed revolution, but the instances that immediately sprung to mind were things like hardline authoritarian states that are sometimes that sometimes have these kind of like visual trappings of 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 like soviet marxism things like the dprk or or like modern china which are you know functionally fascistic in very many ways i might be talking about that a bit later with parliament by the way i i'm i'm hesitant to say that they don't have a failed revolution it's just there's different ways of revolutions failing like it's very it's very much uh, kind of like a, a when insurrections die Yes, meets yeah. meets God. Uh, what's the quote? There's there's this classical quote about. Um, oh yeah, it, it, it's the here, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. It's that one. Do you see what I mean? Like it. it yeah, this that, that's more like, yeah, that's more counter revolution from within the revolution than, or like the revolution devours its own children or whatever. There is a bit specifically in um, Rule where he speaks on this counter counter revolution from within. Um, but but to me, this kind of like um, lack of more holistic analysis almost speaks to like an over-reliance on mass, on mass movement fascism and I guess populist elements of fascism. Whereas when you look at, I mean, you make the examples of um, China being like, um, you know, nowadays very fascistic in certain ways. You can make the same uh, analysis of the UK currently, but it's not coming from this sort of like Soviet style um, uh, socialist myth it's coming from the upper classes and it's not to do with mass movements or failed insurrections it's to do with like the upper classes and the petty bourgeois doing their thing that they're always doing it's not entirely one or the other but I think missing out the two elements leads to a uh, stunted analysis if that makes sense it's, it's, it's like a, a melding of the two 
what I would mind. what I would argue as being like the conclusion to these two like opposing ways of theorizing it is that the place that fascism emerges from isn't necessarily the failed revolution itself, but it's the period of like accumulation and like reconcentration that like the power system goes through mm -hmm. after and during the failure of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And like the, the way in which the revolution fails is is kind of uh, a deciding factor in that. Uh, we should probably move on from Trotsky, but there is one more quote that I would like to that I would like to read out. Okay, so this this is just kind of like a wee timeline from Trotsky where he discusses the the phases of transition that Mussolini's fascist movement went through, uh, and I think this is this is quite important because it means that early on there were analyses of fascism as like a dynamic movement which didn't stay in one form for long, like it was it was relatively protean, like it shifted forms. Uh, so yeah, and I quote: uh, two years after its inception, fascism was in power." It entrenched itself thanks to the facts that the first period of its overlordship coincided with a favorable economic conjuncture, which followed the depression of 1921 to 22. The fascists crushed the retreating proletariat by the onrushing forces of the petty bourgeoisie. This was not achieved at a single blow. Even after he assumed power, Mussolini proceeded on his course with due caution. He lacked as yet ready-made models. During the first two years, not even the constitution was altered. The fascist government took on the character of a coalition. Mussolini attained this at the cost of bureaucratizing the fascist party itself. After utilizing the onrushing forces of the petty bourgeoisie, fascism strangled it within the vice of the bourgeois state. Mussolini could not have done otherwise, for the disillusionment of the masses he had united was precipitating itself into the most immediate danger ahead. Fascism, become bureaucratic, approaches very closely to other forms of military and police dictatorship. It no longer possesses its former social support. The chief reserve of fascism, the petty bourgeoisie, has been depicted. Only historical inertia enables the fascist government to keep the proletariat in a, in a state of dispersion and helplessness. In its politics as regards to Hitler, the German social democracy has not been able to add a single word. All it does is repeat more ponderously whatever the Italian reformists in their own time performed with greater flights of temperament. The latter explained fascism as a post-war psychosis, the German, so the German social democracy sees in it a Versailles or crisis psychosis. In both instances, the reformists shut their eyes to the organic character of fascism as a mass movement growing out of the collapse of capitalism. Um, this last paragraph really reminds me of how like liberal American analysts of the Trump administration really like to talk about Trumpism. They really want to see it as like a moment of crisis and exception and that, that is absolutely an assistant to them in terms of pulling the wool of their own eyes. And like, you know, it's just, it's just a brilliant crutch for burying your head in the sands to say that it's, this is born out of a, a particular like psychosis of the state and psychosis of the body politic, like the people have gone mad. Surely they will return to sanity. Was that inviting some kind of response from us or? Oh, if you've got anything. Uh, I don't think particularly. In that um, case, you should probably just agree with me. I, I mean, I do. I think that's correct. <laughs> I, I think <clears throat> I think there is something to be said for, it, it, although you can say it is a cop out to refer to kind of the the, the psychosis of the masses. Um, I think there is something to be said for the profound effect on the collective psyche that World War One had, in the sense of like the 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 military at like the the mass death was a big escalation for people, and it affected people quite profoundly. 
And I, I think that is one of the reasons why modern fascism takes such a different form. Uh, I don't think it is a entire explanation uh, either, but I, I would add that. Oh, so would you would you argue that because like modern Western fascists haven't been exposed to like genuinely like World War One, World War Two levels of mass violence that it has a profound effect on their like movement psychology? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would agree with that because I don't think there is baseline off the wall as the kind of guys who we were reading about when we were reading Klaus Devolite are. Yeah, I mean, this gets into kind of, um, I mean, I may be using the wrong term here. This kind of gets into base and superstructure stuff, but to, if I'm using that correctly, but to my mind, um, this kind of stuff is obvious because it's like, it's a historical context that no longer exists, as does, you know, the industrialization context, which no longer exists, as does kind of the the you know the the imperialism timeline that no longer exists because we live in a time of like globalized imperialism rather than say specifically western european um i think there are things to note in context i don't think that it uh uh over overturns your point entirely one thing that does occur to me uh with relation to what i just asked is do you recall that bit in the the episodes that we recorded about the penis and fascist conceptions of the penis where there's that period of passages from the book by Thevelite where he talks about people like basically like fucking dead bodies in a, in a sort of metaphorical way by poking them with rifles mm -hmm. it occurs to me that like the only place now where you see that kind of language is basically like Atom Waffen 8chan guys talking about like uh like the most gory shit they can possibly come up with to produce like basically forum bait yeah the the kind of the mass social trauma of like forum bait which like a lot of people our age were exposed to like in our early teens yeah we don't see that in 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 it that's a specialized thing that's a very niche subcultural thing mm. but then it was a lot more broad like there was a much wider social base of people who were traumatized and they were integrated into society a diff in a different way yeah, I was. And I wonder if up... that's. I wonder if that sort of pulled the rug out of it in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was. I was going to bring that up by saying like um, that there are two groups which I think probably sort of fit into the kind of the kind of uh, categories which you gave earlier, which is like the the war veterans and the industrialization thing. Which is that there are there are in America definitely there are a certain category of like Iraq Afghanistan veterans. Absolutely. Uh, which has fed a little bit into some of the kind of modern post-fascist stuff in the US. The thing is, um, is that although although the Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns were quite big, um, they weren't draft army big. They were they were professional army big. Yeah. You know? And also a lot of the time, the people who were in those haven't necessarily been ended up being the people who are now the fascists. Um, but if you think like about the fascists the... have adapt have like adopted a lot of the a lot of the stuff that grew out of that, like the whole thing about like the beards and and sunglasses and dressing as though they're spec ops guys from Iraq stuff. Well, you you make a really good point there, and in, the, in the sense, both of you, in the sense that <clears throat> the people who have these direct experiences are much smaller and on a different scale because they're professionals rather than uh, you know conscripts. And also the, the the cosplaying that you refer to kind of speaks to me about like if you look at modern American fascist stuff. A lot of them are basically cosplaying 
um, <clears throat> Gulf War veterans. And that speaks to like the weird kind of media entertainment aspect of modern American fascism. Like if you look at Boogaloo Boys, it's very brand and logo based. It's very wordplay based. It's, it's, it's almost an ad campaign. Right, Boogaloo, Boogaloo Boys are like the Amazon Freikorps. Yeah, that's that's the other that's the other section which I was going to talk about. Like I was going to comp- I was going to say that the the trauma of industrialization is maybe not directly comparable, but I'd maybe say similar to the trauma of the like I don't know what you'd call whatever's happening right now. Digitalization, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's like a switch. different, it's a totally different kind of trauma. It's not an abusive trauma. It's a seductive trauma. It's the trauma of mass consumer society. Yeah, the like the like growing up in this world post 1990 or 1995 or 2000 or 2001 or whatever when whenever you want to place the dividing line i mean i would personally place the dividing line uh the when i said earlier about like global imperialism i do think there is something in um comparing like if you want to talk about imperialism really broadly in the sense of like you know states just like causing mass misery and extraction of resources and 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 treating people as things etc that's now done on a much more globalized scale and it's so it's it's much more not atomized but it's 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 you know like the roni particles it's invisible and they're and they're out and they're everywhere rather than in this historical context being directly linked to nations and states and geography i just want to i just want to say are you are you making an official podcast unilateral decision that we're, we're using roni rather than rona i'm sorry covid sars covid 19 whatever <laughs> Honestly, if there's one thing that causes a split in the party, it, <laughs> it will definitely be if E decides to make it an official podcast platform that we're referring to it as Roni. Yeah, Macaroni 19. <laughs> is, is that like Coney 2012? <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, right, next part Hannah Arendt. Just like how we just did an in-depth discussion of George Orwell and George Orwell's massive influence on liberal analyses of fascism, Hannah Arendt also had a massive role in in like setting the groundwork for thousands of liberal essays in the New York Times. Accordingly, we will not be discussing Hannah Arendt. Instead, we will be discussing anarchist theoretician Alfredo Bonanno and Otto Ruhler. As I as I said earlier, um, uh, both uh, Freddie Banana and Otto Rule. Um, <laughs> we can't call him Freddie Banana. I think. Okay, so he is calling like him Freddie Banana. He's still alive. You can ask him. <laughs> I'm gonna ask him. I'm gonna say, dear Freddie Banana, I think you're so cool. I, <laughs> I okay, please, is, please adopt is... me. You know, you know how like uh, social democrats who think that they're anarchists sometimes send an email to Noam Chomsky because oh, yes. oh, he, no. he actually answers his emails. Yeah, this, this is like that, except Alfredo Bonanno is actually an anarchist and not a fucking ideological cuckold. Like no, this, this, this literally happened with Wolfie Landstreicher. He had a he had an email which was well known to a bunch of green anarchists and like egoists, and people started emailing him so much that he like. That was the only form of internet which he used, and he stopped using email. <laughs> so he just doesn't use the internet anymore at all. Hey, would you mind explaining who Wolfie Landstreicher is for the listeners? Uh, yeah, he's um, a kind of green anarchist, egoist uh, writer. Um, he's written a, quite a fair amount of stuff on his own. 
Um, but the thing I know him for, and the thing which a lot of people, especially online people, will know him for, is that he did pretty much the first serious translation of um, what was originally called The Ego and His Own, and then he changed the translation to uh, The Unique and Its Property, which is a book by uh, Max Stirner. Um, it, he did the first uh, German to English translation of it since like 1910 or something. Mm. And it's uh, definitely the superior translation. That's what he's known for, really. For clarity to the listeners, uh, Max Stirner was like a very early individualist philosopher who ha- who now has had a massive influence on anarchist theorists uh, and, and wider libertarian theorists. He was... Um, a contemporary of Karl Marx, but I would say definitely not his friend, although he was arguably a friend of Engels. They kind of met in this like sort of silly uh, German intellectual idiots club and had lots of arguments together. And then Engels drew some silly cartoons of them. And now Max Stirner is a fan favorite of like discord anarchists up and down the globe. He's a very, very, he was such a strange man. (laughs) <laughs> On the subject of leftists going a bit off the rails, or people who I people who are idolized by leftists, Rule, Rule's essay mostly speaks on uh, fascism as he sees it within um, Bolshevism and within leftist radical leftist movements. Let's get cancelled. Yes. Um, <laughs> so the introduction from Freddie Banana. Um, provides a... <laughs> Call him Freddy Banana. Listen. Fuck me. Okay, Listen. we do we do have to have a bit where you say that, and I will correct. I will say you mean Alfredo Banana, <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise people won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Okay. Only said Alfredo Banana once. <laughs> okay, I'll do that now. Then I'll do that now. Um, so Freddy Banana. Okay, <laughs> Alfredo Banana. Alfredo M Banana. Um. That, that is his name, actually, yeah. The M stands for massive truckload of bananas. <laughs> the M stands for massive fucking legend. Because who else robs banks at 70 as an anarchist? Only Alfredo, massive fucking legend, Banano, or Freddy Banana, as I like to call him. He, you can't call him Freddy Banana. We discussed <laughs> this prior to recording the intro. It's I'm going rogue. It's anti-Italian what? racism, and the two Italian listeners, which I know statistically <laughs> from Podbean.com's own analysis section, definitely exist, will cancel us. Do you want to know what the M stands for? It stands for Maria. Lovely. Yeah, that's oh, nice. That's quite a nice name. I assume it's his mom's name or something. To, to kind of foreground it, uh, Alfredo Bonanno foregrounds uh, and contextualizes rule in his introduction with a bit which I think um, sort of characterizes both his views on the piece and the piece itself, where he says, now that the tragic history of fascism has run its, the full course of its formal development, culminating in the modern democratic state, rule's article becomes more readily comprehensible to us. It was written at the end of the 30s and dedicated to the contemporaneous struggle against both Bolshevism and fascism. The real dominion of present day capitalism shows the authoritarian designs that have proved provided the platform for contemporary fascism, camouflaged by democracy, and those of contemporary Bolshevism, camouflaged by the dictatorship of the proletariat, to be quite similar. So this whole piece of writing essentially starts from that premise that um, the the so-called leftist states of Soviet um, USSR and uh, and, uh, uh, Democratic People's Republic of China are a different form of fascism uh, to the others, but in no, no, no less in their way fascistic um, 
situating it specifically within like you know states are bad uh fascism culminates in the modern democratic state um he interestingly kind of runs through some things which i think a modern listener thinking about modern fascism and modern anti-fascism and modern leftism might find familiar uh one of the first things that he starts with is Though some may assume that Russia is one step nearer to socialism than the other countries, it does not follow that its Soviet state has helped the international proletariat come in any way nearer to its class struggle goals. On the contrary, because Russia calls itself a socialist state, it misleads and deludes the workers of the world. The thinking worker knows what fascism is and fights it, but as regards Russia, he is only too often inclined to accept the myth of its socialistic nature. This delusion hinders a complete and determined break with fascism because it hinders the principal struggle against the reasons, preconditions, and circumstances which in Russia, as in Germany and Italy, have led to an identical state and governmental system. Thus, the Russian myth turns into an ideological weapon of counter-revolution. It is not possible for men to serve two masters. Neither can a totalitarian state do such a thing. If fascism serves capitalistic and imperialist interests, it cannot serve the needs of the workers. So this, uh, you know, to all of our tanky listeners, I'm sorry, but uh, this very, you know, I very much agree with this in that uh, if you look at, for example, Adam Curtis recently put out a new documentary uh, series where there is a PC highlights of a Soviet astronaut who was tasked with going up into space to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the revolution. He knew that this was going to be a, a suicide mission because uh, his craft was riddled with issues. And so he demanded that his body be presented in an open casket after he died, which he knew he would do in order to show the lie of, you know, the socialist myth. And if you think about it, like, you know, it's pretty bad workers' rights, pretty bad socialism to have someone have a lethal workers' rights issue in this great socialist state. Um, In terms of workers' rights specifically, the piece also goes on to speak on trade unions, um, where he says... It is generally accepted fact that in their, yearly, in their early beginnings, trade unions were of great importance for the proletarian class struggle. The trade unions in Russia were young and they justified Lenin's enthusiasm. However, the situation was different in other parts of the world. Useful and progressive in their beginnings, the trade unions in the older capitalistic countries had turned into obstacles in the way of the liberation of workers. They had turned into instruments of counter-revolution. Um, again, Modern, modern leftists will see echoes of this when you look at, uh, you know, like Unite and um, what's that union which uh, collaborates with the Tories and, and stuff all the time? Oh, uh, PCS? PCS? Yeah, and like on the fact that, you know, in America... God, the, 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 there's you, too I, many of them to count. That's <laughs> an open fucking question. Because initially I was going to say that like the other, the other brilliant example of a collaborative union would be the AFL-CIO. Oh, yeah, God. Uh, yes. Also, the, the other thing this little quote reminds me of um, is the context in which it's talking about the, the 1910s and the 1920s is particularly relevant to the American trade unions because uh, that was the period in which the big coal battles were happening with like uh, the United Mine Workers and like the, the rather kind of like peripatetic IWW. And also those two unions in combat with the more uh, rather generic and mainstream ones which then later became the, the the like the spine and backbone of the AFL CIO. Yeah, um, that was like Knights of Labor type, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Knights. It was like post Knights of Labor bullshit, basically. It was like uh, you know fraternity of workers, white workers in particular. Mm. Um, 
I mean, especially when you look at um, modern America now, like in terms of in terms of capitalist states, uh, you know, you have loads of places in America where you have literally no workers' rights, which is the hire at will or work at will states and, and right. legislation. One of, the, one of the big leftist losses in the most recent presidential election was the failure of a, a, a left-wing driven campaign in California to deny a particular workers' rights reform that was being pushed by Uber. Yeah, and when you get oh, to the point that. where Uber can do can basically buy Proposition A, and and now if you look at the Amazon union stuff, Amazon literally are collaborating so closely with the city they were able to change traffic lights in a way that caused accidents, just to stop people um, talking to uh, union organisers on the sidewalk. Um, but I guess the point I was going to make is that it's very interesting that in America, which is a country which naturally seems extremely hostile to workers that those militant uh, unionists who were in combat with other unionists uh, were the ones who were able to establish like, you know, the, um, the labor rights that they do actually have or used to have before they got rid of them. It is worth noting that back in the, back in the good old days, as in that example, the, you know, the labor movement did have a fair few Tommy guns. Yeah. I mean, these were Americans and they did have access to guns far more easily as well. I mean, it was just easier to get guns in general then. But. Not to not to not to overblow the power of the gun. Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's even footage in the same Adam Curtis documentary where you literally see all of these militant miners with a fuck ton of guns. And I and I compared it to the other coal miner kind of um, uh, stuff that happened in the UK. And I literally remember watching it and being like, "Oh yeah, that's nothing like the UK because we just got beaten up by the police." And right, the reason they weren't beaten up is because they had guns. Right, there's that fate, like the, the most famous um, stuff from the coal miner strike, the most famous photo, I mean, is that one photo of a police cavalryman on horseback running down with like a full arm saber swing with his baton. Oh, from all grief, yeah. Yeah, coming to completely clobber some poor fucker in the head. Yeah, it, it also reminds me of... Um, the Battle of Peterloo, which was also, um, I can't remember, a relatively lefty director did a film of it. Um, and basically watching that again, that reenactment, it's pretty much the same thing. Yes, the police um, who beat up all the miners uh, in the 80s didn't have bayonets, which they stabbed people with, but they were doing pretty much the same militaristic um, movements. And that, and that also kind of shows the how the British have like um, turned like the, we're a police state and like a very military police state, but in a different way to the U, the US because we don't have guns. It's more in terms of like cavalry and and like uh, you know moving people around. I mean, yeah, there's there's a reason why like the the leading states when it comes to police tactics more than like police like fancy combat gear. Uh, the leading states in terms of tactics are like the UK and Israel. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or arguably some of the other European nations with the Carabinieri. Yeah, true. Like Spain, Italy, France. Um, the German riot police are just fucking awful at their jobs. Um, they should... or, or good, depending on what your point of view is. Uh, yeah, good for us, bad for them. Uh... So he also has... He, he, he ends this essay with um, nine kind of key points about... Uh, Bolshevism being bad uh, but before that he also speaks on electoral politics which I think again is relevant to modern stuff uh, where he says <clears throat> the ultra lefts fought parliamentarianism in all its forms they refused to participate in elections and did not respect parliamentary decisions Lenin however put much effort into parliamentary activities and attached much importance to them 
The ultra-left declared parliamentarianism historically passé, even as a tribune for agitation, and saw in it no more than a continuous source of political corruption for both parliamentarian and workers. It dulled the revolutionary awareness and consistency of the masses by creating illusions of legalistic reforms. And on critical occasions, the parliament turned into a weapon of counter-revolution. Um, again, like to me, this very much links to, um, if you look at momentum, which people had great hope in lots of people I know who usually do not participate in electoral politics and labor were really emboldened by momentum under Corbyn and then lo and behold after Corbyn didn't get in because the press well you know no one wanted Corbyn to get in because he was left wing um, regardless of his other faults uh, and then now look what's happened to it like it didn't Keir Starmer literally just get rid of a bunch of jobs in the middle of a pandemic um, so I, I, I also agree with this point as well um, his, his, his nine points are essentially that Bolshevism is a nationalistic doctrine, which obviously leads to fascistic um, kind of uh, destinations. It's an authoritarian system. Uh, it's highly centralistic. Uh, it represents militant power policy. It's a dictatorship with a mechanistic method. And the social structure of Bolshevism is of a bourgeois nature. And, he said, and, and I think this point specifically I'll go into a bit more detail of. It, because it doesn't abolish the wage system and because it refuses proletarian self-determination rather than the dictatorship of the proletariat over the products of labor, it's therefore fundamentally still within the same class frame of like the bourgeois social order. So capitalism is still perpetuated regardless of whether you're being paid in commie bucks or American petrodollars. Uh, he also says that Bolshevism is revolutionary element only in the frame of the bourgeois revolution. Unable to realize the Soviet system, it's unable to transform essentially the structure of society and its economy. So it, it's always going to establish state capitalism rather than socialism. And this is borne out again uh, with, with kind of, obviously Russia is now <clears throat> completely capitalist, but, but if you look at China with their state capitalist centralist method, like that's what, that's what yeah. stabilized into. That's a huge um, Marxist, like orthodox Marxist debate thing, which, yeah, God. Yeah, that would be which, an entire episode on its own. Bolshevism is not a bridge leading eventually into socialism. Without the Soviet system, without the total radical revolution of men and things, it cannot fulfill the most essential of all socialistic demands, which is to end the capitalist human self-alienation. It represents the last stage of bourgeois society and not the first step towards a new society. Now, obviously, this is the most dated of all of his points, but I do very much agree with the fact that his broad point is sort of like, you fucked up somewhere along the path to gay space communism. And so you end up with state capitalism and fascistic elements of varying degrees, like all the yeah, other instead of, instead of gay space communism, you end up with cishet office capitalism. Ugh, gross. Not even office. Half the time it's factory capitalism, which like... Yeah, so um, uh, speaking of Bonanno, who you mentioned wrote the, uh, the intro to Struggle Against Fascism begins with the Struggle Against Bolshevism. Um, he, he wrote a little bit about fascism himself, like he he came up through the kind of uh, post-war Italian left, uh, but really came to came into his own in the 70s in like the 77, 78 kind of period, um, which was a bit of a weird time in Italy. Uh, there was quite a lot of fascism going on at the moment. There, there was that whole, uh, there's a whole episode where there's a lot of stuff to do with like uh, fascist journalists and fascist judges and like um, fascist framing leftists for carrying out bombings but then also leftists were carrying out bombings and Bonanno is great he's still around um, he's still alive 
um yeah he's he's probably most famous for writing on joy which is just the most wonderful little pamphlet and i love it and everyone should read it um and there's some small discussion of fascism and especially the kind of idea of like micro fascisms which comes through deleuze um and like talking about fascism in relation to a lot of like bolshevik and like highly authoritarian leftist and nationalist stuff I think one of the things that I took away in terms of fascism when reading Armjoy, which, as you said, is like the best text. And if anyone enjoys this podcast, please read this. You will enjoy it. It's short and it's fun. If you um, hate this podcast, read Armjoy and it will make you enjoy this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, when you look at his like sort of his prose is um, as, as the bit I read out, like quite incisive. Uh, but but also quite um, tangential. So if you look at Armjoy, he has little references, I think, to stuff that is relevant, such as like where he says, um, you know, the comrade who sets off in the fog every morning and walks into the stifling atmosphere of the factory or the office, only to see the same faces, the foreman, the timekeeper, the spy of the moment, the Stakhanovite with seven children to support, feels the need for revolution, the struggle and the physical clash, even a mortal one. So like when he's referring to Armjoy and, you know, his central points, he does make references to the sort of um, Bolshevist failure and like the counter-revolution. Um, but to him, he's speaking in a much, I think he's speaking in a much broader sense almost in his own work. Yeah, like he, he has that, uh, I mean, we're supposed to be talking about it now. He, he has that little thing which he's written about anti-fascism specifically, where, yes. where he talks about how for him anti-fascism is not a separate thing that he does that is different from everything else he does for him like and and he falls kind of into a similar thing as kind of some of the stuff that ruler's talking about uh where he he says he doesn't really count fascism as separate from his combat with the with the state in general as an anarchist and i maybe maybe it's kind of similarly to to trotsky's idea of like fascism being part of the same fight against capitalism in general yeah he, he says uh fascism is a seven letter word beginning with f uh in his characteristic irreverence uh, human beings like playing with words which by partly concealing reality absolve them from personal reflection or having to make decisions this symbol act in our place supplying us with a flag and an alibi and like to me that's like pretty you know insurrection anti-state stuff but he also says uh Things move on, the years go by and so do power relations. New bosses take the place of the old and the tragic coffin of power is passed from one hand to the next. The fascists of yesteryear have complied with the democratic game and handed over their flags and swastikas to a few madmen. And why not? That is the way of men in power. The chit chat come and comes and goes, political realism is eternal. Uh, and obviously he, he continues, but, but his, his tone I think broadly is quite similar although much more like you say like holistic and embedded in his like day-to-day -day general kind of not just politics but i guess like his sort of personal code um uh kind of echoes some of the points that rule makes about bolshevism yeah he's he seems to be kind of more concerned in this little mini essay with kind of attacking people on the same kind of side as him uh, for being just anti-fascist and nothing else like he's he specifically mentions um he mentions from, echo doesn't he, he uh, well i i think that he's mentioning echo 
it, it's not it's not outright and obvious. Yeah, I think he's maybe talking about Echo in this bit. He may he may just be directing it generally at a lot of older Italian anti-fascists, um, amongst whom Echo would probably count. But he says, of course, if I had been older than eight at the time of the resistance, perhaps I too would be overwhelmed by youthful memories and ancient passions. I would not be so lucid, but I don't think so. Because if one examines the facts carefully, even between the confused and anonymous conglomeration of the anti-fascism of political formations, there were those who did not conform, but went beyond it, continued and carried on well beyond the ceasefire. Because the struggle, the life and death struggle, is not only against the fascists of past and present, those in the black shirts, but is also and fundamentally against the power that oppresses us, with all the elements of support that make it possible, even when it wears the permissive and tolerant guise of democracy. And I think that's that's basically his argument in a little nutshell there really yeah which i agree with he's right he's um, right <laughs> I and he should say it i wouldn't say that to anyone's face but... well we don't rob banks i think that's the difference between us and freddie banana isn't it <laughs> really gonna keep calling him that yes i am i think i would probably tweet that and then if anyone replied to me i would not reply to them uh <laughs> We're really showing where we stand as anti-fascists. <laughs> I mean, it's different when you're a grumpy old man. I think you can get away with a lot, a lot more. I mean, he literally says, like, I don't defend, I attack. I'm not a pacifist. I mean, he has, like, the best track record for, like, actually doing stuff in the entire world. I think he's one of the only people who I'd be like, if he was like, what have you done that's better than me? I'd be like, uh, I can't, I can't talk to you. Because he's, like, Rob Banks. He's been in, like prison numerous times for being involved in like serious plots to like assassinate fascist people like serious fascists uh he's pretty serious he's like the anti-fascist superhero i think his body might just be animated by like the pure energy of hating everything about the currently existing world you know who among us who has not tweeted a jokerification meme cannot relate to the things that freddie banana says Alfredo Bonanno was Jokerified in like 1950. <laughs> and that's the episode title. <laughs> <laughs> what, the Jokerification of Freddie Banana? Yeah. <laughs> I would like to, I would like to uh, pose a question to you, which is what is the major lesson we can draw in terms of analysing fascism from the work of Otto Rilla and the admittedly rather minimal work in this sense of Alfredo Bonanno? Uh, I think as far as Alfredo Bonanno goes, it's more a an idea of praxis and practicality in that it should form a part of fighting the general things which you always fight. And Well, that, that's his opinion on anti-fascism. Yes, I think he has more to do with anti-fascism and the idea of like how you do anti-fascism than he does about, the, about like fascism as a concept necessarily. And I, but although I would maybe say that he he has that idea of fascism as having become an essential part of the kind of post-war and onwards democratic state, especially in Europe and America. I would um, agree very much in terms of Bonanno. Um, I think personally for me, when reading Ruler, um, uh, I, 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 would, I would say that the lessons to be drawn are sort of like the cautionary tales of leftist praxis that, that as Ruler says, like has gone badly in the past and, and can go badly again or is going badly again, especially within the context of both of these theorists sort of implying this similar point of like fascism being, uh, as you said, a like bound up with uh, kind of Western 
modern uh, capitalist states. Um, and therefore, like, you know, his, his critique of electoral politics, um, union organizing and um, uh, sort of uh, t not not tankyism, but, you know, um, glorification of so-called socialist states still apply to the modern day, even if the names are changed out and the unions are no longer, you know, the, the, the German radical workers unions of the 30s, but are now, um, you know, the, the, the rubbish us and uk unions of the of the 20s anyway um like wrapping up the section on banana and ruler um we're now moving on to something a little bit more dry and that kind of intersects with some of the stuff that trotsky was talking about which is economic analyses of fascist uh political systems so i've gone to a relatively obscure source here which is an economist which i think almost none of our listeners will have heard of a guy called Michael Kalecki. Michael Kalecki was a highly influential Polish Marxist economist um, who was active in the middle of the 20th century from kind of like the 30s through to the late 60s. He was particularly notable for kind of like stealing the scoop from John Maynard Keynes on a lot of analyses of how like business stimulus works, like government stimulus packages. However, he's not particularly well known in English political circles or English speaking political circles. Part of this is due to McCarthyism, um, and part of this is just simply due to the fact that a lot of his essays weren't published in the English language until relatively recently, or at least until after his death. However, the reason why he's, in, why he's interesting in this context and why he's relevant to analyses of fascism is that a collection of his essays, or, or some of his essays, called The Last Phase in the Transformation of Capitalism, contains a lot of analyses of like imperialism and the arms industry and the roles which fascist movements play in relation to kind of like big businesses interactions with the government have a lot to talk, have a lot to teach us about how capitalist and fascist movements can kind of interact and particularly how they can interact in the context of like emergent or triumphal fascist periods there is one particular essay which i want to look at which is called the fascism of our times and this this was written in 1964 five years before his death. And it's essentially uh, an, an analysis of the context in which the OAS, the French fascist organization that emerged out of the French uh, colonial war to keep Algeria, which they've lost, um, the neo-Nazi movement in West Germany, which was kind of getting its feet back, uh, getting back on its feet in the late 50s and 60s, and also the rise of Goldwater and Goldwaterism in the United States, which was Particularly when Trump was elected, a lot of people began to look back to Goldwater to see, kind of like, to read the tea leaves. Previously on this podcast, we kind of looked at cultural stuff, we've looked at wider political concepts, but we don't tend to look at shit like, you know, the disposition of, like, the state with relation to industrial financing. Um, that's not really particularly relevant to TERFs but it is relevant to fascism as a wider movement and given that one of the core arguments of our show is that transphobes are part of an emergent western intellectual fascism it might be worth looking at that thing, that kind of thing because it might teach us about the financial and economic position the uk and us governments find themselves in and how that might relate to the emergent modern fascism the essay the fascism of our times 
Um, as I said, it largely concerns itself with things like West German emergent neo-Nazism, the OAS, Goldwaterism, but it connects these things to economic decisions that are made by the government. Uh, there's, there's a passage here which I think is rather instructive and I think will really ring true to a lot of modern anti-fascists. Uh, it goes as follows. Today, government economic intervention has become an integral part of reformed capitalism. In a sense, the price of this reform was the Second World War and the Nazi genocide, which were, which were the final effect of the heavy rearmament that initially played the role of stimulating the business upswing. Thus, fascism is no longer the necessary basis of a system of government intervention. It cannot proclaim the slogan of elimination of mass unemployment, because in developed capitalist countries, employment is maintained at a rather high level. On the contrary, Barry Goldwater, who was then um, the candidate for US presidency of the Republicans, uh, while exhibiting racist and Cold War demagogy, about which more will be said below, attacks not only government, quote, interference in the economy, but even social insurance. It is in this way that the support for the most reactionary business groups is paid for. And this is also the reason why he has no chance of seizing power. It is interesting that in the pre-election polls, even in the southern states, twice as many people favored Democrats over Republicans in the matter of maintaining prosperity. What all present-day fascist currents have in common with Nazism is the anti-trade union attitude, which again reflects the link with reactionary big business groups. This will be discussed in more detail below. Who makes up the mass basis of the fascist movement? Goldwater won 40% of the votes, and although the Republicans suffered a crushing defeat, Goldwater achieved a tremendous success. In each of the countries considered, a different part of the population yields, according to, a specific, according to specific conditions, to a different slogan, each of which, however, is racist or chauvinistic in character. In the case of France, those who yielded included the Algerian Frenchmen and those in the metropolis who were antagonistic towards the numerous Algerian immigrants. In West Germany, the former Nazis, with quite a few things to hide in their pasts, are the right candidates. They are interested in embellishing Hitlerism, and this links up nicely with the revanchist ideology proclaimed in a somewhat milder form by the government. The resettlers who did not arrange their affairs to their full satisfaction, definitely a minority, are another, are another group susceptible to neo-Nazism. Finally, in, this, in the United States, the opponents of the Negro emancipation drive provide recruits for the reactionary groups considered. This includes not only Southern racists, but all those hostile to Negro aspirations for jobs at present available only to whites. In addition, in all cases, the fascist ranks are reinforced by anti-communist fanatics who are the product of prolonged propaganda spread through the mass communications media. The analogy between France and the United States is worth noticing here. In either case, the main driving force of the fascist movement is the potential emancipation of the oppressed nations or the decolonization in the broad sense. The German variety of fascism is different, although even in this case, the Heron Volk notion can be found at its roots. Right, so there's a few things I want to touch on in this quotation. Firstly, there's this mention of the business upswing. This is a callback to a much earlier essay by Michael Kalecki, which he published in 1935, called Stimulating the Business Upswing in Nazi Germany. And in it, he describes a rather convoluted system of state-directed loans known as works, well, not exactly loans, it was kind of like state credit that was supplied via uh, local and central government stimulus packages to get the economy going uh, via these things called work supply bills. And the way that the work supply bill would work 
was that like addition and this is again another quotation additional purchasing power is created effective demand was increased and production rose since the increase in money in circulation was rather small most of those outlays returned to banks as deposits or repayments of credits the amounts in question were at the disposal of the banks for further discounting of the work supply bills by which continued public investment was financed as a result the indebtedness of local and central government increased Either the bank deposits or, and the bank holdings of work supply bills increased, or these bills took the place of private exchange bills in the bank's portfolios. The latter caused a shift in the structure of bill holdings in the bank system from, from private to public bills, with a large part of the public bills finding their way to the Reichsbank, almost entirely filling its portfolio. So that is a deeply convoluted concept and a complete mess of sentences. What he's essentially saying is that the way that the business upswing in Nazi Germany worked was that they were writing money onto the balance sheets of industrial corporations. Um, and then he makes this callback in this later essay to this concept of like the business upswing where like heavy rearmament, like government stimulus towards rearmament industries in Nazi Germany was funded by this like work bill method, like this complete bullshit method. And that was the initial manner of stimulating business. And then like the second phase of it was the absolute like imperial gluttony of the Second World War. And that then set this stage for this like post-war uh, kind of like Western industrial, like mass capitalist fascism, which emerged in a variety of Western nations. Um, apologies to the listener for the economic incomprehensibility of all the stuff that I've just read out. Uh, I would hope that my two co-hosts can represent the listener in asking what the fuck that all means, if that's required. I would like to know uh, when you when you speak on these um, not loans, uh, what how how that intersects with fascism specifically, like how right. it was so this utilized. Is, this is quite interesting in the modern context because obviously in in the modern like leftist subcultural context, we actually associate fascism quite closely with libertarian ideologies. Especially in America, yeah. One thing I was thinking about, if 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 this is a correct kind of parallel to draw, which it might not be, is it reminded me quite a lot of the charity gag orders, which is obviously the inverse of giving out loans, but in the sense of charities, like they're not, they're like mass organizing uh, platforms, and also are vaguely critical of the government because austerity creates char- the need for charities. And the gag order essentially was a threat to withdraw funding in order to get specific. Um, charity to shut up specifically and tow a line. So I was wondering if it like bore any relation to that in that the government is using, or the state is using a carrot or stick approach to get desired results. Does that make sense? It does make sense. However, I would uh, be critical of the concept that they're directly connected in that kind of like immediately intelligible manner. The charity gag orders is actually an inheritance from this thing that was called the global gag rule, which was a, a, I think even prior to Bush, but was particularly notable in the Bush era, was an American policy whereby uh, international American aid packages that came directly out of the American budget um, would be denied in the case of NGOs and um, third world government organizations that were willing to favorably mention the concept of abortion to people who they were giving aid to. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially like a policy inheritance from that school of thought, rather than being uh, something that they've consciously inverted from the stimulus concept. Yes, the idea of like a carrot being contrasted with a stick is an absolutely classic state control method, and it absolutely emerges out of that mode of thought. 
but I would say that there is a specific heritage that actually comes from the culture war side of the equation rather than um, economic policy. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't thinking there was a direct illusion. I, 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 I was just wondering how the two intersected, but that definitely makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, there may be other origins to the uh, British um, form of, of gag ruling because of the British context and the way that we, the way that the British government um, interacts with quangos and NGOs. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the, the specific direct gag order um, that was imposed uh, on, on, on education and, 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 and also charities, etc., with Section 28, like it's something that the British government love doing. Yes, there's history. I, I actually, the thing which I thought of in, instead of that is the, the, compar the modern comparison, although well, I suppose not entirely modern, but still going on is that whole thing of um, how the entire American arms industry is literally just based on being government contractors and that's the only reason it exists. And that like that's a huge part of why heavy industry still exists in any way in North America. Is basically because the government is willing to just prop them up on that at all times. Hey, are you saying that the um, military-industrial complex is fascistic in some way? Mm, who would think that ever? Um, but like, I'm, th I'm thinking about that specifically in the context of like how it's enabled the America uh, America to like retain a level of industrial power that means they can kind of challenge the movement of industrial power towards China. And also how they've like managed to do that to like keep productivity going in like a post 2008 crash kind of world. It's also very instructive if you compare the UK and the US because the UK absolutely does not have the degree of sophistication or like widespread integration that the American arms industry does with our arms industry. Our arms industry, like it's present and it's significant, but if you look at like the Bombardier factory or like the Rolls Royce or whatever, it's not, it's not, as as like woven into the economic networks as it is in the US where you'll have like literal you'll have like the senator from Lockheed Martin yeah yeah that's what that I was about to say here. yeah like you you do not have like BAE do not have like the Tory party bought out in the way that a lot of American arms companies basically own the Republican Party. Uh, my impression of the, the kind of difference is that, like, you say, like, the US have, like, CEOs directly buying politicians out, whereas in Britain, they kind of don't need to do that direct buying out because they all went to the same schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a, it's a more general, like, kleptocratic kind of corruption rather than a specific, like, military-industrial complex. Yeah, here I would say that the matter is settled via like norms and behavioral systems, whereas over mm. in the US it is a fully fledged economic apparatus. Yeah, mm -hmm. which arguably means, which you know, fully fully explains itself because of the fact that American imperialism is a, a thousand times more functional than British imperialism, which is well known to be the global clown car of imperial behavior. I would also maybe tie it a bit towards, uh, until relatively recently in a historical sense, there was still a British state arms industry. Um, yeah, I that, know only, that, Enfield that isn't... only really wrapped up in the 70s. Yeah, Enfield didn't really stop being a thing until then-ish, didn't it? So... We nationalised our military-industrial complex. Yeah, in the same way that yeah. France still do. 
Um, the other area in which I wish to link this to UK fascist currents is that all of this concept about the business upswing, the purpose of the business upswing is to um, drive the extraction of surplus value and the realization of surplus value from the point of view of the, of the, of the capitalist class, right? That's what the business upswing's purpose was. That's why Nazis did all of this stuff with the arms industry. In the context of the UK, which is very much one of the big nodes of transphobia as, as its major cultural contribution to fascism, increase in accumulation isn't coming from a stimulated business upswing. It's actually coming from like an increase in like gouging. It's coming from a qualitative change in how surplus value is extracted it's coming from austerity it's coming from like political mugging of the workers well yeah the fact that the turfs are allowed to dominate like the media for example is more to do with the fact that it's harder for your average young working class journalist to make a career than it is the state is directly incentivizing turfs to be in journalism for example no no i think i think that's absolutely accurate but on the on the on the wider sense i think that like the far right movement and the fascist movement in the UK, like we talk about all of this, we've like the, the, the standard discourse in, in, in the UK and the US has been that like the failure of social democratic leftists post 2008 to realize their vision led to a massive explosion in white nationalist radicalism in the context of, you know, Western Europe and the US. And like here in the UK, we talk about, you know, like UKIP and Brexit when we talk about that stuff. If we are to believe Kalecki's position that there's an inherent link between a desire of capitalism during periods of organizational crisis to stimulate, you know, business upswings or, or like an increase in the, you know, the consumption and the extraction of surplus value, then like, what does that tell us about the role of austerity in the kind of like emergence, like the specific ways in which fascism has emerged in our societies recently? I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd say that a lot of this is to do with the ways in which capitalism has, like, changed how it understands how it does itself post-1980s and, like, feeling as though it should be more, in inverted commas, li libertarian about the market. Right, because it's almost as if um, austerity has played exactly the same role as arms industry uh, subsidies did in the 1930s. Yeah. Which is, on the face of it, completely nuts. But actually, when you dig into what the capital flows are doing, kind of makes sense. Yeah, and I think it also means that, like, you end up with a similarly... Uh, they've done it through a different method, therefore the fascism looks slightly different as well. Like, that, I think that maybe you could tie that into the fascism now looking different from the fascism of the 20s and 30s because it's the fascism of the reaction to, or like the, uh, the as a cause of austerity. <laughs> I, I do have to wonder, and this might sound like a completely off the wall take, <clears throat> Britain has always been extremely hostile to immigrants, uh, even immigrants which they invited, such as with uh, Windrush. I, I do have to wonder if austerity almost shaped the reactionary phenomena, um, especially in terms of like xenophobic um, anti-immigrant and white nationalist anti-immigrant sentiment. 
in the sense of people make jokes on the internet about Britain being like full of like a bunch of cucked people who are happy suffering as long as it's like for a reason. And I, I don't think they're entirely off the mark, especially when you look at the way that we dealt with the post-war, um, like how our rationing went on for ages and stuff. But one of the things that like austerity really hit, which did hit like the British collective psyche is obviously the NHS and the welfare state to some extent. And I do wonder if in the kind of freedom of labor um, movement in the post like 80s, when we, jo- well, we, jo- we joined the EU in the 80s, right? The post 80s kind of thing of, we've now got freedom of labor and that and that obviously has its own economic implications. I do wonder if, if, if kind of like, it's easier to stoke resentment and paranoia against immigrant groups when the benefits for being a citizen of the British state are not as great as they were in the past. With, with things like healthcare and, and welfare and stuff right like it's, the, it's, mm. the dis, it's the displacement of resentment which fascism often relies upon like that yeah that i think is a very well accepted take in british leftist circles. yeah, leftist yeah circles. Sure. unless of course you're freddie dempsey <laughs> oh, is, God. It, is it eddie dempsey I it's eddie dempsey, dempsey. yeah um, there's a lot of freddies in this episode but I, I, I do, although it is a well-accepted take, I think it's worth highlighting specifically because of the lengths the state has gone to stop people thinking about that. You know, the obsession with the white working class and all that shit. I think this, I think this actually links into like the British susceptibility to brainworms, and also in terms of the British state being fash. In in that, like, these kind of guys can no longer be mass leaders because the state has sort of taken the wind out from their sails, so they can only really do small-time cult of personality stuff. Yes, um, I think that there's also an argument that like uh, mass politics in general has sort of had itself been kind of suckered and have been beaten up a bit in the kind of like the triumphal rise of neoliberalism. But obviously that that argument has been heavily discredited over the last decade. Mm. As far no, as I, I think I think it's just that the British state has a monopoly on crimes now. Yes, that is also probably a fucking big favor for it yeah the other thing the other thing about like the cults of personality you get with like british fascist guys uh which i think is instructive for how we analyze fascism is is how closely they fit the molds for like low rent classic cultism i i do think it's interesting that like when we look when we look at kind of like british low-rent fascists fascist grifts this includes tommy robinson and now nigel farage even though like you said he had massive influence and also of course the turfs who this podcast is about is is like there's this sense where the only kind of the emergent property i suppose is entirely personal brand based because politically change has to be made in other ways and therefore that encourages them to get very culty very quickly there's no kind of veneer of respectability in that era area they have to cleave off i suppose the other the other big influence i think would be from the cultural side would be like the rise of like reality tv personalities in the british context yes yeah big brother Mm. huge huge yeah it's like every british far-right cult leader is like jade goody with swastikas on or yeah. hates Jade Goody and has swastika on. Swastikas on. It's one well, of those two. Simultaneously, to be a true fascist, you must at, at, at once be Jade Goody and hate Jade Goody. Yes. Which is interesting, specifically around turfs, because like um, the dominant characteristic of a British turf is of the kind of woman who would disdain Big Brother in a Miss, Mrs. Bouquet style fashion. Mm, that's a good point. So yeah, 
we're going to talk about uh, another thinker who's kind of less on the kind of like Marxist radical and more on the kind of like the mainstream academic side. Uh, this is a guy called Robert Lifton. So after our little debacle with Stephen Hassan, where it turned out that Stephen Hassan was like duped by a bunch of weirdos on the internet into thinking that hypno porn was, was turning your kids trans, I decided that I was going to retreat to the classics. And the classic uh, analysis of cultist behavior in the 20th century was written by this guy called Robert Lifton, who is just about still alive. Uh, and this guy, um, and a couple of other researchers, in particular, a woman called uh, Margaret Thaler Singer, um, wrote various different analyses of cultic ideologies and, and uh, instances of cult groups. Uh, Lifton's main work was studying Maoist China in the period of the Cultural Revolution. And he developed this concept that was basically what we would refer to as brainwashing and what the, what the Maoists referred to as thought reform. And he, and he studied the ongoing process by which this was carried out. And it was very much top down, which is a, an area in which it differentiates itself from like modern cults, which are much more stochastic and much more broad based, particularly due to social media. But this, this was a government policy and policy was, was literally to engage in reform in the way that you would do a structural economic reform and what you would be reforming was the contents of people's minds, like the manner and the patterns in which they thought. This was integral and intimately related to the cults of personality that, that were springing up around Chairman Mao in, in like the 1950s through to the 1970s. And if we're going with Otto Ruhler's analysis of Bolshevism and these kind of like post-revolutionary autocratic states, then analyzing these cults of personality and analyzing their, their kind of like the, the patterns of systemic behavior that go on in them, I think is really informative for fascism because you see these exact same things happen in fascist cults. You see thought reform in fascist cults. Uh, we Like the whole reason why we made that episode, I think episode five is about QAnon and we had that whole section about like the different ways in, do, in which they do like milieu control, uh, like thought control, behavioral control, all that stuff. The reason why we did that is because it's extremely important. So we're gonna we're gonna have a little discussion about this. We're gonna talk about Robert Lifton, and we're gonna talk about all of the weird bullshit that these guys got up to, to shape the minds of the common man, and so on and so forth. I would really like to talk about the thought terminating cliche. I think that has very specific relevance to turf rhetoric at the moment. Um, and obviously it can be applied to like stuff like EDL shit and stuff like that. But I, th I think would be most interesting to talk about. Yeah, the thought terminating cliche is a brilliant way to, to get into it because it will be familiar instantly to anybody. Even if, even if not in a context where you've had an argument with a fascist, you know, in real life, in the pub, on the street or on an internet forum, um, the thought terminating cliche is actually like an emergent property of human behavior. It's basically like a, a, a like a fallacious logical utterance. Uh, it's, it's worn out of cognitive dissonance essentially. Uh, and like the way the way that it works is that it's 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 often it often takes the form of an aphorism. Um, people who get into arguments in, in like online leftist circles might be familiar with the phrase no investigation means no right to speak which is a like a, 
a bastardization of, a, of, of one of Mao's quotations. And this mm. is often used in like hardline Marxist debating circles, which I used to be like quite closely involved with to tell the other person to fuck off because they're being anti-Marxist. That's also interesting. I have no idea if um, Mao had this in mind when he when he came up with that, but that reminds me of something said by a Taoist philosopher who was like, we shall pass over things of which we do not know or, or, or something to that effect. I would not be surprised if that was an intentional illusion because Mao was a fairly well-educated man. Yeah, he'd 100% be familiar with any major Taoist stuff. Oh, no, I assumed. I just wasn't sure if he was intending to allude to it. Right. So um, Lifton's definition of the thought terminating cliche uh, is as follows. And this is from his book, which was published in 1961, called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, the, the, the source material of which was drawn from interviews with uh, like refugees from the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And I quote, the language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought terminating cliche. The most far-reaching and complex of human problems are compressed into brief, highly reductive, definitive-sounding phrases, easily memorized and easily expressed. They become the start and finish of any ideological analysis. Um, and you know that 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 kind of just like puts a little bow on all of it. And you you can apply that to any kind of political concept that you want. It's a very universal. One of the criticisms that you could make of this is that it's very universal in the same way that you can criticize Umberto Eco's writing for being very universal. Because this, you know, thought terminating to cliches do not necessarily have to be emergent from cult-like environments. They can just be emergent from humans being fallacious and flawed individuals. You know, you can, you can, you can get uh, completely free-minded individuals who will just like trot out some like palpably cliched bullshit if you piss them off in an argument and they don't want to think about what they're saying. However, the reason why it's important to cults is because cult-like environments produce situations in which the deployment of the thought-terminating cliché becomes highly important to maintaining the cult structure. And it becomes highly important to replicating the cult structure's own like rhetoric within the circles in which its members are circulating. So like the thought-terminating cliché is basically like an area denial weapon for discourse. Yes, I agree with that. That makes complete sense. I guess that's what I meant when I when I when I thought it it applied very much to turfs because like as anyone who has witnessed someone try and argue with them, you shouldn't try and argue with them. Don't do it. Um, has seen they will they will use they will use these constantly and specifically as a way to to socially cohere among themselves. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you you can see it. I think, I think it's especially happens just on twitter in general because of the format mm. because it's a format which is so dedicated to short and sharp communication this is why what i think one of the reasons why they benefited so much from being on websites like twitter is because they can issue these things which really chime with the conservative mindset in the uk and the us for oh we need a common sense common sense explanation for things or something like that yeah, it's like the same, it's the same kind of things which fit, basically fit into like either the caption or a headline for a newspaper article. And also the way in which they deploy it, like, not only if you've seen these arguments, you've seen them pepper every, you know, t usually it is a tweet, although they do speak in a similar way um, when they do live streams or when they are at Speaker's Corner or, you know, whatever. And in fact, when they have had chance to integrate with the government, which they've done recently because the government hates trans people, etc., 
you look at their statements and they are all plagiarism and thought terminating cliches, even in this fancy long format, because they have just internalized it completely in a very cult-like fashion rather than a cynical sort of debate sense, I suppose. Um, but yeah, even if people press them on stuff, it's almost like they are using them in this sort of cult way rather than just to win the argument. It's like, it's like they have fully internalized uh, the, these, these, these aphorisms or whatever you want to call them. Moving on from the cult, uh, from the from the, the the thought terminating cliche, there are other concepts which lift and develops, which I think are perhaps less so for the trans for the transphobic movement, but definitely they're important for uh, wider emergent Western fascism. And the first one I want to kind of pick up on is this concept called revolutionary immortality. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll quote here again. I would like to suggest that much of what took place in China during the Cultural Revolution can be understood as a quest for revolutionary immortality, by which I mean a shared sense of participating in, permanently re in permanent revolutionary fermentation and of transcending individual death by living on indefinitely within that continuing revolution. Central to this point of view is the concept of symbolic immortality I've described in other work, of humanity's need in the face of inevitable biological death to maintain an inner sense of, co of continuity with what has gone on before and what will go on after one's point of in one's own individual existence. From this point of view, the sense of immortality is much more than a mere denial of death. It is part of a compelling, life-enhancing imagery, binding each individual person to significant groups and events removed from him or her in place and time. It is the individual's inner perception and involvement in what we call the historical process. This sense of immortality may be expressed biologically by living on through or in one's sons and daughters and their sons and daughters, theologically in the idea of life after death or other forms of spiritual conquest of death, creatively through works and influences persisting beyond biological death, through identification with nature and with its infinite extension into time and space, or experientially through a feeling state, that of experiential transcendence, so intense that, at least temporarily, it eliminates time and death. Applying these modes of symbolic immortality to the revolutionary individual, we may say that he or she became part of a vast family, reaching back to what is perceived to be the historical beginnings of the revolution and extending infinitely into the future. This socially created family tends to replace the biological one as a mode of immortality. Moreover, it can, it can itself take on an increasingly biological quality as, over the generations, revolutionary identifications become blended with national, cultural, or racial ones. Uh, later on in the essay, Lifton actually connects this to Mao the person. And during the Cultural Revolution, Mao was basically dying. Towards the end of it, he couldn't like walk or move at all. And he was very much concerned with this and concerned with like the collapse of the, of the Chinese Revolution, which he had in his own phrasing, had been at the helm of for you know, decades at this point, like four decades. And the Cultural Revolution focused as it was with like the politicized role of, of militant children was in a big conceptual degree was his effort at kind of like reaching a genuinely like Olympian godlike way of achieving political immortality. The reason why I think this is important for fascism is because of fascism's role as a death cult. Now, I think there is a rather complex argument over whether or not you could count Mao specifically as having fascist tendencies. 
I myself am generally quite inclined towards describing a lot of Marxist-Leninist leaders as being semi-fascistic. In Mao's case, I am highly divided. Nevertheless, I think that like the way that he was orienting himself towards this kind of like youth cult, death cult dichotomy is really, really informative when we start looking at the youth cult, death cult of fascism. We've already talked on this show about Timmy and about how Timmy relates itself to like the fears of nothingness and the fears of the abyss and nihilism and, and the fears of like family death and self-death. And I do, I do wonder about like the way in which uh, this kind of like analysis that Lifton's made about the emergent kind of like cult of using the child to defeat death on a massive political scale can tell us about modern fascism because it seems to although it's not all you know you can't compare the cultural revolution to what the turfs and what the transphobes are trying to do with kids and what QAnon is trying to do with kids at all because they're really very different I do think that there's these elements of similarity which really pull the veil over the the, the corpse of the death cult I think it's also worth noting that the Cultural Revolution and this kind of uh, attempt to cheat death by a dying man uh, also relates basically to kind of like the Roman imperial uh, concept of like apiathesis, which obviously started with Augustus, who was the first true emperor, sort of by itself and then became a tradition to the point where by the time Claudius became an emperor and then a god, loads of satirists, uh, like someone wrote the pumpkinification of Claudius. Which seems uh, a tan tangential, but I think kind of illuminates sort of like where he was at at that point in contrast to, you know, the, the, the rest of um, his political career in its conservatism. No? I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, how, how could we possibly do a podcast about fascism without mentioning ancient Rome at least once every three episodes? Right. Um, Ironically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's also interesting, again, you, like you said, you can't make direct links between TERFs and Maoism or, you know, other, other historical fascistic or not uh, regimes. But the way in which the TERFs uh, have deified Magdalene Burns, a notable TERF, after her death from cancer, does sort of have this desperate biological quality to it that you describe in Through Lifton. I think the phrase desperate biology would be a really good cornerstone for any analysis of transphobic fascism. Yeah. So yeah, not to not to add too many like Maoist eggs to the pudding, but we're gonna and we're gonna talk about uh, how would you describe Freddie Perlman? A like I don't know. I like there's not really a one word description for this weirdo, is there? No, I mean weirdo is a pretty good one word description. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a quote from him which he says, uh, "The only ist I would describe myself as is an, is a cellist," um, which apparently he was a very good cellist. I'm going to use a lot of is to describe him now, which I'm sure he would hate, but whatever. He's dead. He can do, I can do whatever I want now. He's started off as a kind of Marxist and then gradually moved away from traditional Marxism and like contemporary Marxism to him, which I'm talking about like the 60s and 70s here, and became more and more anti-Marx and more and more anarchist, but wouldn't call himself anarchist in any way. And basically founded alongside uh, Jacques Kermat, the, the, field of anti-civ thought, uh, mainly through Against History Against Leviathan, which, as I've already said, I just did a video on. It's basically some kind of weird cross between like an epic poem and like a book and like a myth about civilization being this kind of malevolent antagonist to humans' desire to live freely. Um, 
and then a lot of his like stuff about the contemporary world uh, which he was existing in uh comes through the lens of like may 68 where he wrote like worker student action committees uh alongside someone who was in paris with him during may 68 which if i need to i'll explain may 68 in a bit um and then he also wrote some other stuff about like uh the 10 theses on the proliferation of egocrats and the continuing appeal of nationalism which is specifically aimed at like what he calls egocrats people who come to the fore in a lot of the like 60s and 70s uh like left-wing organizing spaces and which I'm sure are familiar to a lot of people nowadays of these like individuals who want to create themselves as these like uh, semi-messianic figures who are like in complete control of these like micro leftist cults and like uh, wield absolute control over these things and then him examining those as like the 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 seeds for like future revolutionary parties and how that kind of thing that ends up becoming the seeds of, of the like bad versions of revolutionary parties which have existed throughout history. Um, I guess it's also relevant to talk about some of his other stuff which he talks about in like Against History Against Leviathan and how he conceives of the state as this um, literally he refers to it as the Leviathan referring to the book Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes and like this conception of Mm -hmm. uh, the state and the body, body politic as literally being a living thing which is made up of all of the bodies of of like all the humans who are present in it with the king or the leader at its head and as the face um, and he like turns that into various different metaphors further on through like using the metaphor of uh, militaristic land-based empires and leviathans being like worms specifically like steadily decaying worms and then like trade-based uh seaborne leviathans as being an octopus which in my video on ahel i do go into a little bit about like the possible anti-semitic uh connotations of tentacle stuff which Pullman does then specifically dispel on his own as well in the book i guess like Pullman, as opposed to all of these other theorists is really situating the conception of like the brutal authoritarian and sometimes fascist state apparatus in this kind of like very long term and yeah notionally against history context but it's in a historical context in narrative terms yeah i, re I refer to it as a history still but it's it's i I'd, I'd maybe say it's more against against history as a as a study or as a concept it's kind of like in the same way that like i mean it's <laughs> Uh, it's almost a dialectical way where he's you have to be against something in order to create a synthesis of with it eventually. Yeah, I would personally say that that's definitely the intention between, yeah. behind this essay. Like, because the essay is actually notably, like, a lot of the events that it makes reference to are completely fictitious. Yeah, or at the very least are, like, weird, slightly skewed tellings of truthful things. Like, uh, the way he talks about a lot of the stuff which is in the Bible, uh, a lot of the stuff about like the Israelites and like wars between the Israelites and their neighbors and stuff like that. And then stuff about like Phoenicia uh, and Akkad and like a lot of the stuff around Rome and Byzantium. A lot of the stuff which he brings up is either stuff that 
he has basically skewed it through his own lens so that he can tell the story he wants to and it and it's it's clearly knowing that that's what he's doing and then there's a few other things where it's like further historians later on have like looked back at stuff which was at the time accepted as truth and is now not which would be like how he talks about like cathars and stuff like that and some of the ways in which he refers to some indigenous things particularly native americans he talks about native americans a fair amount because uh because of where he was in america he was uh, based in michigan um he seemed to be quite in, like attempting to be quite embedded in a lot of the like um the lot of the, like indigenous culture in that area as as far as i can tell so he does speak about like great lakes native american culture a bit but guess, in a way which is very like 70s yes yeah in some ways the book is definitely quite dated the other the other thing that i think ties into discussions of like cultism and discussions of militarism and like the you know the the, the like the poisonous uh, mentality of like the militaristic male that um Thevelite talks about uh is the is the like the leviathanic armor concept that exists in the against history against leviathan poetic tract mm -hmm. and like the idea here is that these figures in history that are within leviathan um find themselves increasingly sort of like losing their innocence and they they find that like armor is kind of like growing around them and they can't remove it they can't like remove this this kind of like moving cage from their flesh which is meant to be, you know, it's, it's a metaphorical reference to kind of like authoritarian and fascist mindsets seeping into one's everyday life and touching everything one does and becoming like this permanent fixture. And yeah. the, the concept which Perlman describes is that even in trying to like pull off the armor, one pulls off one's own flesh, that there's these kind of like in, inherent, there's this inherently self-harming aspect to how fascism affects the individual who even buys into it yeah it's it's and it's simultaneously also he often uses it in this way where he's talking about those people who do attempt to break free from leviathan and leviathan's control often find themselves suddenly outside leviathan but still encased in leviathanic armor meaning right. that they don't kind of like charles manson type figures who are completely outside of the state but are still doing these absolutely demented things I mean, he, he, I, th the, the main person who he speaks about, there's, well, I'd say there's two people who he speaks about this most directly about, and that's uh, Moses, who is escaping from Egypt, um, but he's so leviathanized, he's so encased in this leviathanic armor, that he escapes Egypt and has all of these promises of escaping the Egyptian leviathan and taking all these people with him, but then he arrives and he's completely unable to conceive of the life which isn't essentially the same as the one in Egypt but with a different person at the head of the Leviathan instead. I mean you could apply the Leviathanic armor to um, Rule's critique of Bolshevism and kind of like Soviet socialistic myths as well. Oh I mean, they're practically synonymous. Yeah I mean I mean I mean Perlman literally in the same paragraph that he is describing Moses in this way he is comparing Moses to Lenin. You could also, if you wanted to be reductive in a different way, in reference to um, th th uh, Klaus' second name, which I cannot pronounce correctly. Thevelite. Thevelite. Um, I, I think you could argue that, that gender and enforcement of gender is, 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 fulfills a similar function for many people. 
Well, isn't that a core argument of Perlman's essay? Um, I would, yes. So, like, um, if you're just listening to this and you haven't read it, the 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 spelling of the title is fairly important for Against History Against Leviathan. It's against his story. Um, and there's this thread running through the entirety of the book where he's often talking about the idea that those people who live outside Leviathan and those people who are rebelling against Leviathan are often bringing women into the social sphere again and like uh speaking about how people will perceive of those societies outside leviathan as being matriarchal because they're just so unused to the idea of women having uh any kind of prominent role in a um in a society and like his whole conception of gender is like very weird and quite outdated nowadays i think it's very 70s like a lot of the rest of the book and it can read as quite essentialist nowadays, I think. I don't think it's meant that way, though. I think, um, yeah, I, I think Perlman definitely is someone who, if you could bring him back to life and download the last 10 years of the gender discourse into his head, he'd have some very interesting and valuable things to say. But that never came to pass. Um, I guess that when I when I said about gender and Leviathanic armor, it, it reminds me of what you just said, M, about Charles Manson, <clears throat> in the sense that I think turfs think that they are outside of the Leviathan and therefore they they act out in these extremely wild ways um, because they cannot see the, the the gender cage that has grown upon their flesh. Yeah, I mean, if you look at people like uh say posey parker casey hopkins people like that like deep core girl baz idiots then there's just full-on uh like completely committed fash armor psychology going on there which is tied into grifter stuff yes but more specifically i mean they think that they are being radical like that's where the term turf originally came from whether or well, not the girl Baz and the girl boss has become completely divorced from it and whether the term turf is even relevant anymore is, is obviously a discussion for a different episode but yeah more I mean, broadly it's not relevant to posey parker and katie hopkins they're, certainly not they're not turfs certainly not but you, you know what i mean like like the you know what going back to the grifting the grifting thing like i would say that uh the role of grifting is like you're accumulating money and like all of the all those little bits of metal are just accumulating on your flesh as little flakes of armor like that's a hundred percent the dynamic that's going on with the with far-right grifters like you see that with andy Nyo, you see that with that was the that was what happened with milo yiannopoulos like basically he was murdered by his own clout <laughs> i mean it's what happens to a lot of leftist grifters as well honestly <laughs> But I guess this this comes back to the broader point, like the Leviathan does not talk specifically about the left or the right. Like that's why le so-called leftist grifters end up uh, drowning under the weight of their own armor as well. Okay, um, so like the other side to a lot of uh, Perlman's stuff when he's writing about more directly relevant things, uh, it's just, especially when he's writing about contemporary movements to him, he writes a lot about the idea of um, kind of the Maoist stuff which was coming up in America at the time and specifically he wrote this uh, little essay called The Continuing Appeal of Nationalism which is basically supposed to be a takedown of uh, national liberation as a concept um, and he goes into like a lot of stuff where he's comparing 
uh, Maoism and Stalinism to, uh, he actually makes a distinction between national socialism and fascism. He very clearly considers them uh, as within the same grouping. And he also adds, obviously, Japan to that. Um, and he, he talks specifically about the nationalist mindset and how that affects things and that like side of stuff and how it's the nationalist mindset often that like relates uh, fascism, national socialism, etc., to uh, the like post-Lenin Bolshevism and Maoism. And he's like very specifically making a lot of the like stuff which people are probably now familiar with, but which then was probably a bit more radical of like the idea of, um, I'm looking for the exact quote right now. He refers to the idea of like a person, a person who is a security guard or a supermarket shelf stocker looking at their boss, who is like the chief of police or the manager of the supermarket and knowing that the reason why they're in their job, despite the fact that they know more about their job and they're better at their job, is because they're a different nationality or race to the person above them. And then saying, but would it actually be better if that person was in that role? Would it actually fundamentally change anything? Or would it just be the same thing, but with a different color, basically? Which is like fairly generic to us now. But at the time when he was writing, it was probably a bit more relevant. Um, another part of that essay, which is really, I think, quite important and like very Pullman-esque, which is the word, word I like to use to describe his school of like the weird and way in which he writes, is he talks a lot about how basically Nazism, especially, and like the genocidal nature of Nazism is hugely to do with uh, like the logic of science and scientism being taken to its extreme and how in the end actually that element of fascism has ended up continuing in the modern democratic state with the like complete veneration of modern science and technology as concepts which you know obviously fits in with his like green anarchist tendencies and also is directly relevant to um, the modern british state in the sense that the most genocidal actions that the government has currently taken have been justified with science around the eugenicist policies around the mass COVID deaths. Yes. I mean, I'd, I'd also actually directly tying it to like this podcast specifically a bit more, his sniffiness about like the idea of science as the arbiter of complete truth is probably kind of relevant to that whole idea of like people falling back on like in inverted commas biology to defend sex. Oh, thing. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to make the point in regards to like li the literal genocidal impulses of the state in Britain have taken the form of, of, of scientific uh, cry scientific bad stuff, uh, you know, recently. Yeah, I no. mean, t today, Boris Johnson basically admitted that opening schools would lead to mass death. And that was it. Basically, like a lot of what he's saying is that the Nazis stole a lot of their ideas from like Jefferson and Washington and we consider Hitler as a maniac but when people talk about Washington and Jefferson they're sane and like the peak of like enlightenment rationalism and we we adopt their ideas without any criticism even though they're the people who are like them and I guess like Andrew Jackson etc like the chief architects of the genocide of the Native American people and like how that's continued in like what is basically considered as the archetype of a Western democracy. 
especially with Western democracies taking on a more technocratic form, which has this same scientific, um, you know, fas fascist rationalism baked into it from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, without without risking sounding like Ted Chichinsky, yes. I mean, again, I'm going to reference the recent Adam Curtis doc. Everyone likes to make fun, apparently, of the fact that Adam Curtis hates computers. But he makes the point, which I very much agree with, uh, in, in that, you know, technology... I mean, this is shown with, is it IBM um, who were like direct? Yeah, like, yeah. Direct fascist collaborators. Yeah. Um, and like all early tech, you can basically trace a lot of the people who worked on it to extremely bad things, even if they weren't literally Nazis, Nazis. Um, although some of them were. Yeah. And and like, uh, like the fact that like huge parts of modern American science is tied to like uh, German Nazi scientists being brought over to work for NASA and stuff like that. And e even tying it back to like um, cr kind of criminality and stuff like tech is very involved in um, uh, surveillance and criminalizing populations. And again, tying it back to the British state, like Prevent, which is a whole program which seems to only exist to criminalize kids in schools, um, uh, is, is very tech-based. It's like monitoring social media, it's monitoring people's um, online communications, and a lot of its um, schema is around monitoring people's technology use, which of course comes into things like cults more generally, and of course uh, relates to actually radicalized people like the TERFs. It's, 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 it's very broad, I guess, but fits in within like a Perlman-esque analysis, would you say, eh? Um, I think so, yeah. I think that would actually be quite relevant to it. I guess the way that I would want to conclude this would be to look at the generalized list of descriptive things that Echo came up with. Things like, you know, the, the cult of tradition, the cult of action for action's sake, all of that kind of stuff. And then tie in these various different diagnostic elements of how fascism relates itself to political apparatus. Maybe, maybe construct something that's a bit more transparent to the listener. We start off with this, you know, the, like the ultimate phrase, which we've cited about 70 times so far throughout various episodes. Uh, the first feature of fascism is the, culture, is the culture of tradition. Traditionalism is, of course, much older than fascism, blah, 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 blah. And he makes various references to like Hellenistic traditionalism, counter-revolutionary Catholicism with relation to the French Revolution, Greek rationalism, blah, 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 all of this stuff, Roman pantheon, um, traditionalist mystique, all of these things. We see a lot of this in modern fascist movements, and I wonder, um, like, which of the various theorists we've discussed so far has most to say about this? Uh, I'm personally a little bit torn. Could I, because I would say either Lifton's work around like the mysticism of cults, or Perlman's work, Perlman's writing about things like armor and mythology. I was going to jump in with Perlman just being straight up like fascism is progress. Oh, okay. So you think that the, the role of fascism as, progress, as described by Perlman would be in, in direct contradiction to the role of the culture of tradition in reinforcing fascism? Or uh, I think, yeah, I think Perlman is in direct, in direct disagreement with the first two points almost. One thing I will say is that although no one theorist offers a specific point to this, there is a broader theme of several of the theorists, which obviously we ourselves have selected, um, where they seem to critique uh, states as being fascistic or not in some sense because of the their failing to break free from like old 
um, <clears throat> like not necessarily Leviathanic armor or not necessarily biases, but like an inherent uh, weakness to traditionalism, whether it's like gender politics as with the TERFs or like the rules critique of the, the Soviets and the, the nationalist kind of Bolshevik myth. With regard to like uh, Perlman notionally being in contradiction to these, I don't see how uh, like the progressiveness, like the role of progressiveness in feeding Leviathan would necessarily mean there wasn't a culture, like a cult of tradition. Like I think that a cult. Yeah, of- I've, 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 sorry, I've, I've sat back here and been silent and thought about it. And I think you're right. And I think I'm, I'm wrong to do that. Yeah. Oh, okay. To clarify the thing that I'm right about, what I was going to say is that um, <laughs> The culture tradition could arguably coincide and, and coexist with um, like progressive Leviathanic consumption and production schemes. Well, if, if nothing else, the tradition of rationalism is, is the underpinning of a great deal of like modern Western liberal um, ideology. Right. Yeah. And also we, we, we saw when we were discussing uh, Kalecki and more like economic oriented analyses of like the Nazis, that there was this economic progressivism that was directly tied into a, a, a highly cult-like traditionalism. And and also like uh, kind of a theme of Perlman is that even the progressivism, which is shown by like the progressive elements of Leviathan isn't really inherently changing anything and it is still progression within the context of the tradition. You know what it's more like, you know what it reminds me of? Um, so, section three action for action's sake it's more like the progressivism isn't isn't improvement the progressivism is progressivism as action yes mm-hmm. so it's 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 almost like um to judge our context along a fascistic definition we're using different definitions of progress yes like true progress versus uh you know a, 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 another word progress yeah i suppose also perlman is very much criticizing not necessarily progress like like you say not necessarily progress in the way which we think of it but more progress in the conception of like the idea in which the like idea in which uh cyberneticism is progress or something like that of like the idea of progress as like the the way in which progress benefits like systems of control and systems of like analyzing society and infrastructural control to me, the kind of anti-civ kind of like view on progress would be one where uh, the system complexity increases. And so progress just means system complexity increase, which has an equal opportunity for both the Leviathan to grow stronger and um, the, the and people's capability to free them from it growing stronger. Like if that's the kind of forces that are in play, then it really depends uh, on whether you view the progress as good or bad, essentially. There's like, there's, there's neutral progress. Uh, and then there's kind of moralistic progress, I suppose. Right, yeah, I would say that like the conflation that liberalism makes when it describes progress is that it, it like this is a deliberate conflation that exists within liberalism as a bourgeois ideology where it, it, it mixes together economic progress with social progress, which is mm-hmm. complete bullshit. And like this is very, this is very apparent when we were talking about Kalecki earlier because you were getting economic progress via, you know, either via modern means where it's like um, the, the qualitative capacity of capital to to extract surplus was was being dramatically improved by either austerity methods or via um, like rather dodgily underpinned kickbacks to the arms industry. 
but the actual social side of progress was you know, completely thrown to the wind and it would entirely depend on what the what the topic du jour of a given decade was as to whether or not you could broadly define it in liberal terms as being a progressive decade or whatever yeah but i also think it's worth looking at the ways in which liberalism as an ideology distorts the word progress to show what it views as like the ideal state and obviously we don't want that because we're not liberals uh, and so i guess it's where we differ from that is of like course. how we would judge progress to be fair Umberto Eco also not a liberal stuff. He's not really making any kind of like liberal defense of these positions. I think that these kinds of like discussions of the the combination of traditionalism and pseudo progressive extractive economic policies do also kind of serve to reinforce um, the like point four, which is where like Eco says no syncretistic faith can can withstand analytical criticism. The critical spirit makes distinctions and it and distinguishes a sign of modernism. In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. For ur fascism, disagreement is treason. So with liberal societies, you can actually make these internal criticisms of whether or not a given thing is progressive, quote unquote. And I would say that one thing that does differentiate those liberal societies, regardless of how reactionary they may be with regard to social or economic progressivism, whether you've got like David Cameron style thing where things are notionally socially progressive in some areas but are also like highly economically repressive particularly towards specific minorities like the thing that differentiates that from fascism is that disagreement had not yet become treason when Cameron was in power and it was his mistakes that led us to the position where we are in Britain now where like post Blair and post and post Cameron in, in in the cultural sense disagreement is increasingly treasonous. Disagreement is is very much escalating to the point of becoming treasonous or a new legal term which is tantamount to treasonous in terms of its punishment and seriousness, because you've seen the way in which like. I mean, it's, you know, it's not literally the state, but like the media has gone after activist lawyers. I mean, I think the government actually like made reference to activist lawyers. Yeah, it's Pretty Patel, who's yes. one of the most oh, God, yeah. politicians. I mean, she's fucking fat. She's fash, obviously. Um, like out and out fascist, uh, not non-hyperbolic. Um, yeah, I think we're heading down that path. I think, I think point four absolutely applies. Particularly when you're looking at these syncretistic and action for action's sake things, you need to connect them to government policy in a, in a more concrete way and make more like delineated boundaries as opposed to just saying like, oh, okay, there's a rejection of modernism. There's, there's like a traditionalism that goes alongside these. There's an inherent irrationality and these lead to cults of action for action's sake. Like, you know, we, we've got arguably the cult for action for action's sake could even apply to post-Corbyn labor where absolutely where like you, you've got Keir Starmer who is the absolute crown prince of the political pseudo action I mean <laughs> the Labour Party is also doing some pretty like um by the book style fast shit at the moment like I, I don't think that's yes. I don't think it's widening it too much to include them okay it is widening it too much to include them because I think they are following rather than leading I think that I think they're fitting into like a fairly recognizable role of a social democratic party in the similar context of like ushering in fascism as a as a preferable alternative to communism yes way. yeah it, it enters this quite directly collaborationist role the further 
you go. Moving on with the like the economic additions to these arguments, I think like there's the clear area of dovetailing in with the, with point six, which is a uh, fascism derives from individual or social frustration. This is why one of the most typical features of historical fascism was the appeal to the frustrated middle class. Um, yeah, like you know, <laughs> don't really need to say much about that. Should we just move on? <laughs> yeah, that's just yeah, yeah, yeah. Austerity.txt. I think the point five about the fear of difference and point seven about the obsession with a plot and the new world order, that is stuff where mysticism, stuff that's written by occult researchers, that can be brought in more easily to enhance the description, I feel. Yes, I definitely agree. Yep. It can do with general updating as well, just for like a lot of the modern stuff that's happening. Yeah, a lot of analysis of like, I think like QAnon type things could be useful there. Yeah, I'm not like finding anything in the essay that I'm like, this clearly doesn't apply. It, it does feel just like more like filling in and, and updating parts of it. Right, because the standard criticism that we found when we were doing digging on this was that Umberto Eco is not wrong. It's just that there is a requirement for specificity that the essay cannot currently fulfill. Mm-hmm. But that's I what mean, makes like, it so could... time timeless. Yeah, but simultaneously Sorry. also means that you could define like almost anything as fascism using this. Right, it's the George Orwell trap. Like I could define leftist Twitter as fascist through this, which well, is, <laughs> to a certain extent, depending <laughs> on which I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I think that di- I think the difference. <laughs> I think the difference is literally in terms of power. I think personally, yeah, you could technically define any social group with this level of dysfunction. The difference between fascism and dysfunction is that fascism kills more people. I don't think Twitter is anywhere near close to killing people in, in, in raw power, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, oh, I, not I don't... leftist Twitter anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do also think that if you like gave the like Twitter clout leftists power in a way, in like a revolutionary way, then they would basically just end up as like 2020s Maoists, basically. Yeah, they would. End, oh, absolutely. Anyway. They would but end they'd... up like those Japanese Maoist sects that ended up like barricading themselves in cabins and machine gunning each other. Yeah, basically. yeah, because they they fail in the same way, and so whatever they do is going to turn out roughly the same level of counter revolutionary from within the revolution, regardless of the historical context. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've seen what happens. What happened with Red Guards? Well, they're basically Twitter zoomers. Yeah, except I think half of them are like older than us. Um, no, no, the, the Twitter zoomers are the scare. They're really scary. They're the scariest <laughs> ones. They scare me so much. They're so belligerent, and they get so angry at people. Okay, eight is fairly easy. I think that ties kind of into um, the previous thing of like the the obsession with the plot idea. Yeah. Also, the middle class uh, economic terror stuff. I, like, yeah, this, it's this... about the nouveau reach being jealous. Yeah, also, the thing about the strength of point eight is that you can uh, apply it in a much more specific way to given situations than some of the other stuff, which is a lot more vague. Yes. Actually, yes, I think eight is one of the ones where there's, like, the least to add or take away from it. Uh, To to specify for the listeners, uh, point eight in Umberto Eco's essay states, The followers must feel humiliated by the ostentatious wealth and force of their enemies. When I was a boy, I was taught to think of Englishmen as the five-meal people. They ate more frequently than the poor but sober Italians. That's just hobbits. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it is. Moving on to point nine, um, away from the hobbits. 
Uh, I was stopping you before you started talking about the, the Jewish because that was bad. But for fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather life is lived for struggle. Thus, pacifism is, is trafficking with the enemy. It is bad because life is permanent warfare. This, however, brings simple. about an Armageddon complex. Since enemies have to be defeated, there must be a final battle, after which the movement will have control of the world. Okay, so two things here. One, government intervention bullshit tying into like bizarre narratives about the enemy. Two, doomsday cult immortality drive. That's so applies. Yes, I think it re- that really if, uh, that really applies to the immortality stuff which we were talking about earlier. Yes, uh, this is a hundred percent like the drive for immortality as being like the other face of the child death cult that's inherent in modern fascism. Mm-hmm. Also, like it's so inherent to British stuff at the moment with Brexit and with COVID. There are so many examples, general Britishnessly, and also regarding to turfs. I mean, generally in like a lot of the stuff going on in the world where it's just like this idea of the succession of apocalyptic catastrophes happening over and over again, where like every single one which happens must be the very end of the world. And then there's another one directly afterwards. The other thing it makes me think of is child soldiers. So if we're looking at this kind of like fascist two-headed concept of there being a death cult and a child cult, and there's this concept of like life being permanent warfare and this Armageddon complex and the requirement for a final battle. And then we look at it in the context of the way that the specific iteration of the cult of the child with relation to transphobia and like British turfism specifically has made itself known. On the one hand, like the, the Timmies, like the, the little Timmies, like helpless wee waifs. But on the other hand, one of the ways in which they're fed into the fascist meat grinder is as kind of like ideological child soldiers acting on behalf of their parents in order to avenge their parents' mortality and create political immortality for their concepts. Like this is a big driving force behind like the Timmy ideology of the transphobes. You're basically talking about the Volkstum idea. Yes, it's the it's the we feed the perfect Aryan children to the meat grinder because they must experience the war and simultaneously they're the ones who are the best at this and there's also that like Disgusting. desire for kinship with the alienated child. Like they must experience the war because we feel that we've experienced it, even though we didn't. That just applies to so many aspects of British life. <clears throat> that's like fucking everything. That's like the Brit. That's like the- we're just describing the British curse. That's what this episode is. Can someone read out the point? The points isn't me. I'm talking way too much. Uh, are we on ten? Or... Or... <clears throat> uh, do you want to read it or shall I? Eh? Go on. Elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology, insofar it is fundamentally aristocratic. An aristocratic and militaristic elitism truly implies contempt for the weak. Ur fascism can only advocate a popular elitism. Every citizen belongs to the best people in the world. The members of the party are the best among the citizens. Every citizen can or ought to become a member of the party, but they cannot be ple- uh, patricians without plebeians. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this very much applies. I, I'm tempted to say this is another point where it's sufficiently specific that you can apply it uh, in a slightly narrower way. But this, to be fair, this does apply to a lot of more general European Republican conceptions of civic virtue. Yeah, I think this, this yeah. basically applies to like any kind of French Republic style nation state i guess i guess like the the popular elitism and the requirement for there to be patricians and plebeians at once would chime with any kind of modern era republic 
when you're talking about the contempt for the weak, I think there's a contempt for the weak that is constructed out of the concept of the Republic having a citizen. And then there's the contempt for the weak that becomes so extreme that it can be truly defined as fascism. And I wonder what we can add to this that makes that delineation clearer. Is there something about COVID which could be brought up here with regards to contempt for the weak? I'm not the person I mean, to yeah. say it. Um, I mean, there the might literal be eugenics. Okay, okay. So we could we could argue that um, if the contempt for the weak becomes sufficiently like pathologized in the psychology of state to the point at which like eugenics is being openly lauded, then that's when you've made the like the watershed. Like, that that's where the watershed of fascism appears. I I I think you 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 could put it earlier, but you certainly couldn't put it any later. So COVID has forced that um, to become less latent, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's also the way that COVID has basically made like um, some of the weak are permissible and should be defended and some of them shouldn't. And that's basically the, the weak who are included within the citizenry. Right. And that was an evolution of austerity era bullshit about disabled people, basically. Yeah, like the, uh, the whole benefit dodger rhetoric. The austerity has, has convinced us that the weak is an economic category, basically. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, yeah, it's a specifically a human economic category. So, yeah, so it includes, um, because of our hostile borders, like immigrants, uh, to, a, to a great extent, it includes many groups of people because it has become abstracted in that way. So I guess there would be contemporary... Um, like anecdotal situations that we have run into as activists and as individual human beings that could help refine this point, but perhaps not anything in any of the writers that we've examined today? Yeah, I don't think necessarily. I don't think any of them are modern enough to. Mm, yeah. But they ran, I, into, they ran into equivalent situations of like political cleavage in their, in their, in their lifetimes, I'm sure. It's just that they didn't happen to mention them. So point 11 then is... Um, in such a perspective, everybody is educated to become a hero. In every mythology, the hero is an exceptional being, but in other fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. It is not by chance the motto of the phalangists was Viva la Muerte. In English, it should be translated as long live death. In non-fascist societies, the lay public is told that death is unpleasant, but must be faced with dignity. Believers are told that it is a painful way to reach a supernatural happiness. I think that this probably could tie into some of the cult stuff, definitely. Especially yeah, that last point. Yeah, this is definitely directly linked to Lipton's points about um, Mao seeking revolutionary immortality. Yeah, it ties into like the, the general idea of the ascension to another plane of existence. Yes, it's like the cult becomes the vehicle for transcendence, which allows one to escape the concept of immortality. So to, to the concept the concept of mortality, rather. It's like a it's like a, a a transcendental spiritual balm for somebody whose like material conditions are deeply, deeply mortal. I think both points twelve and thirteen could similar have similar contemporary analogies drawn as with ten and eleven to some extent. Can you just reiterate what like twelve and thirteen are for the listeners? Absolutely. So Point 12 talks about machismo. Uh, since both permanent war and heroism are difficult games to play, the ur-fascist transfers his will to power to sexual matters. This is the origin of machismo, which implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits, from chastity to homosexuality. 
since even sex is a difficult game to play, the Earth fascist hero tends to play with weapons. Doing so becomes an ersatz phallic exercise. I mean, this, you know, very directly has many contemporary examples, specifically with TERFs, not even in the larger British psyche. Uh, similarly, point 13, Earth fascism is based on a selective populism, a qualitative populism, one might say. In a democracy, the citizens have individual rights, but the citizens in their entirety have a political impact only from a quantitative point of view. One follows the decisions of the majority. For Earth fascism, however, individuals as individuals have no rights, and the people is conceived as a quality, a monolithic entity expressing the common will. So basically, the disingenuous invoking of like what the people want again has very many contemporary examples uh, within British stuff very directly but also within TERFs. Yeah I mean also like point 12 like the phallic exercise is another term for leviathanic armor like if you look at like if you look at modern American street fascists like proud boy type guys who will turn up to protests in like full like privately purchased battle rattle kit with like a paintball gun and then also like an automatic pistol and three cans of bear mace or something like that that's full it's it's like cosplay that has become sufficiently like fetishized that it's become lethally real but it's still a game to them like it's a deeply real simulation yeah, I mean, also like that that specific point has other relevance in the context of when we're talking about Proud Boys and like the the relevance, like the the I wouldn't say direct connections, but like the fact that they exist and come from the same base root as like the Mugtau stuff. If you don't, that's a men go their men going their own way. Yeah, I mean the the sexual component to the Proud Boy psychology cannot be underestimated. Yeah. I feel like this is one of the best standalone points in the whole thing, point 12, because... Absolutely. Once... I, I wouldn't change very much about that at all. Yeah, once it's seen in context with this like wider movement stuff, it becomes very easy to use that in a very specifically diagnostic way. And you don't get sexual liberalism in the kind of way that fascism is deeply, aggressively sexual. I think literally the only thing you would change on point 12 is the descriptions of what non-standard sexual habits are to modernize them. Other than yeah, that, you just, you just you add a comma and then three or four more words. Exactly. Yeah. And, and maybe a point about how homosexuality is like in some ways an inherent part of it as well. Okay. Yeah. There is the homoeroticism of martial fascism, but like, yeah. No, but also, also a lot, a lot of how like modern, especially American fascism is specifically based around homosexuality okay yeah that's also true yes um i mean i i like pointing at uh milo yiannopoulos etc to be fair they did purge milo they did yeah but they did that last they also time. loved him for being gay though but they did purge him they did i but i think this is the thing is that like um the how we were the same thing about strasser so yeah well yeah i mean they they purged strasser as well <laughs> more harshly but yes <laughs> i guess that's the point i was making about saying that you might change out the words for non-standard sexual habits because we have a different conception of how, how those things relate to fascism because of the difference in sexual norms it's probably some way to connect that to the rejection of traditional of uh, the sorry traditionalist cult stuff but well also it ties into the patricians and the plebeians because the reason why strata was, was tolerated was because he was a patrician 
True. Yes. And the reason why, yes, and the, also that's similarly with uh, Mogtal stuff is that uh, that's their way of reclaiming like Alpha Chadness or whatever. I think point fourteen similarly is one that stands alone extremely well without much need for. Yeah, I mean, this is just you speak is basically just the thought terminating cliche. I feel like we yeah. should specifically mention about you speak that he's referencing George Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, you fucked up here, didn't you, Umberto? Well, 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 we could we could talk about the thought terminating cliche instead, because he's only mentioning Newspeak to explain a context which he explains as, uh, like as a word for what he's talking about. You could perhaps say that the only useful thing about Orwell is when he's cribbing from other people, <laughs> and from ideas which are already present in discussion of fascism. Uh... Yeah, I mean, like George George Orwell is basically like the the the, the Tesco's own brand of analysis. <laughs> yeah, God, even his good quote about guns is just like a shit version of like Lenin quotes about guns. Sorry, I was looking it up specifically earlier when we were talking about uh, English workers not having guns. <laughs> so we can use a less liberal term. Uh, the newspeak. That's just thought, a modernization of it. cliche, which has yeah. the advantage of A, you don't have to read 1984. <laughs> B, you don't have to talk to other people who might unfortunately have read 1984. <laughs> and C, thought-terminating cliche can refer to a very specific sequence of linguistic events that you can actually identify in real life, as opposed to just being like, oh, oh no, they're using new words. It's political correctness gone mad, which is the classic reactionary liberal deviation from what term is actually. Actually, yeah, that's that's the thing yeah. which I would most criticize about this point is that it opens you to being able to use that argument. Shocking that George Orwell would leave us open to opportunism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you sub out uh, Newspeak for thought terminating cliche, the point stands. The point stands in a reinforced manner, I feel. I, I do want yes. to defend my boy Robert Lifton. Absolutely. A, uh, recording this episode has been an absolute blast. Your thoughts were wonderful. Uh, this was a great conversation. And I feel like we discussed a lot of good stuff. I think, we, I think we recorded a great podcast episode, if I do say so myself. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming on and yapping for hours. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to be here. I'm I'm sad that people are gonna miss out on the like extra two hours which is being cut from this episode of us just talking complete crap. Uh yeah, so my YouTube channel is called Soft Insurrection. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times throughout this episode. Um a couple of weeks ago I just released an episode about Against History Against Leviathan, kind of going through it as an introduction, encouraging people to read it more. Um I've also done another episode on um the concept of anti-civ and green anarchy and like explaining it in a way that tries to get away from a lot of the bad faith discussions that happen online about it uh, and i'm also working on another episode about ecofascism which is coming along at some point in the future as climate stuff continues to happen i think a lot more people are going to be thinking about green theory and might fall into pitfalls so it'd be good to know how to avoid those um i'll probably be bringing up some stuff from this discussion about it and like using some of the stuff which we talked about because i think a lot of it is specifically relevant to the idea of discussing the split especially in ecofascism between state ecofascism and uh kind of street level ecofascism which i think are two very separate things for now Oh, that's exciting. Okay, well, I'm excited, so everyone listening should be excited as well. I can't believe you're dictating what thoughts people should have. Um... <laughs> <laughs> this is newspeak to me. <laughs> like, 
fave and subscribe to the year 1984. <laughs> I also want to give a brief, brief shout out to Pierre Emmerich Aubameyang, who's scored a hat trick for Arsenal today. <laughs> okay, so um, I hope this this episode was like helpful for all of our listeners in terms of putting together a mental framework for all of the different fun and wacky ways in which fascism acts. Uh, we have by no means produced uh, uh, an exhaustive encyclopedic account of the structural aspects of fascism. There's loads of stuff that we could have gone into, um, particularly around like race and gender, uh, but those are sufficiently big. We thought we'd better leave them for another time. Our next episode is going to be about the political situation in Scotland, or it's going to be about the Labour Party again, and comparing it specifically to the Biden administration. One of those two episodes will be next. It's a little bit unclear as to which one it will be. Music for this episode was by Molly Noise. I guess we'll see you next time. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. 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 pub conversation leftism so like, i can have a discussion about banano but like it, w- it will be a it will it will not be a podcast informative discussion you're calling him freddie banana now no i you know i i i do know his name i just choose to use a different <laughs> one out of respect for the man you know I, cho- I choose to use a different name out of disrespect for italians in general <laughs> um it's also every time i say freddie banana all i hear is freddie banana and it makes me laugh and that's why i keep doing it oh my god <laughs> i'll stop i just want you all to know that this entire through this entire episode i've just had the seinfeld theme tune playing in my head the whole time